Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get high and surprise each other with a story from history's vault of the weird and the wonderful. I'm Laurel, the older sister. I'm Katie, younger sister, but I think that goes without saying. <laughs> I like how we did this like a little, like a little roller coaster. Arms did up, we? like, wee, <laughs> we're ready to go. Season two, episode three. Welcome, everybody. It's the end of the year. This is our last episode for, well, for season two is our last episode of the calendar year. So I hope you guys all had a nice Christmas and holiday season. Looking forward to the new year. See what 2024 is going to bring. Hopefully it's all right. Just fingers crossed at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Holding on to my lap bar. (laughs) Good idea. We've had a great year. And that's, I mean, thank you, Katie for helping make it a great year. Thank you to our guests who have been on the show. They've all been amazing and wonderful, and we have more of them to come, especially this season. We've got some really great people. And uh, and to you, more than anything, is it's that you're here and listening to us and uh, you know getting those listens in and everything. And I think that's, uh, well, that just makes our hearts so happy. And also, talking about listens, we are, as of this recording, we'll probably, well, at the time that everybody hears this, it'll probably be a little bit closer to the uh, 9,150 or you know 9,200 mark there. But we are just a little over 9,000 listens. Thank you so much. We have uh, projected that we're going to be at the 10,000 that coveted, you know, that that first coveted. benchmark, the coveted 10,000 listens. <laughs> And that should be at the end of season two, uh, based on how it's looking. So thank you so much. And we really just want to, you know, just send so much love to you guys for so supporting us the way that back. you have. This is true. This is true. And, and uh, the United States has been our our top listens, about 80%. But we've had some countries that from the beginning have really stuck it out with us. And that's you, Australia. You're at 5% of our listens. Uh, United Kingdom, Germany. You guys have all always been in the those top four countries there, but um, you know it's it's been duking it out recently with uh, Canada and the Netherlands. I know we've got some um, oh. some listeners there in the Netherlands. Uh, one in particular has reached out and has been binge listening from the beginning for like the last few months. And every once in a while, we'll say. I'm at I'm at this point in your catalog now, and it honestly it makes my day. So I know he's not going to hear this until <laughs> for a while, until a couple of months from now, probably. If he if he makes it that long, if he really decides that you know he's listened to half so the catalog so far, wants to keep going, <laughs> Niels, Niles or Niels. Um, I, I realized I haven't asked for pronunciation of the name, but thank you because <laughs> uh, you and and your your country people are are really. Um, busting down the door here and a big one to Morocco. It, just in the last few months, Casablanca has been, I, I mean, just all of a sudden you're very much in our top Coming in hot. <laughs> Coming in hot indeed. And so it's, it's these sort of things where you get to see the, the countries and these cities from all over the world where people are listening from. And it really just uh, it, that's, I mean, not only is it cool to see and just be like, hey, there are other people in the world that that give a damn, but uh, the fact that you are spending this sort of time with us, because uh, we know we we know ourselves, we know each other, we know it can be a <laughs> bit of a, a rambly, uh, rambly path to be on with us. And uh, we side quest, you know, we, we side, side quest. quest. <laughs> We're, 
you know, we might not be everyone's cup of tea all the time or anything like that. I mean, I know we get it. And, and so the fact that you go, I love you girls. And I, I love listening is, is amazing to me. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Let's make 2024 amazing. What do you say? Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, and I think what's going to make it amazing is, uh, let's continue on with, with what we do here, Katie. So, right. Uh, what are you, what are you imbibing in today? What's your thing? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I was waiting for this moment. So I made an entire mug for Fox's sake. For Fox's sake. Yeah. From my lovely coworkers. They always took care of me. Uh, Mm -hmm. it is my maple bourbon hot chocolate. What is your, what's your choice of imbibement this evening? Uh, I'm going with uh, just a good old sticky bowl of, I wish I knew what this was. I, I did not sound it. very. A sticky, sweet, sticky bowl. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is Miracle Alien Cookies version two. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Cookie Face. I think those are, I think I put a couple of them together because that was just like, I happen to have a little bit of each one. All right. We get to do okay. a little bit of a uh, bottle leaf grinder. You ready? Let's figure out who's going to go first. All right. Bottle, leaf, grinder. Shoot. Ah, uh, you crushed my grinder. Bam. All right. Alrighty then. Okay. So here we are. My story for today. Mm. It's, I'm going to be honest. I hope that you feel like the love from this. Because it. I specifically wrote this one really for you. So I hope you like it. Well, it has to do with a lot of like women's history stuff. So there is going to be a little bit of repeat from some previous stories I've done, but this is more to be like an in-depth look at certain topics. Okay. And uh, if you don't like it, I might cry. So (laughs) I was like, cool, no pressure. (laughs) I'll just say I like it regardless. (laughs) I'll just lie. It's fine. Don't do that. It's not worth it. Okay. <laughs> this came about from me vibing and listening to some of my more favorite playlists. And uh, this song made its way around social media a lot. Um, but my introduction to it was via a lot of my more folk style playlists. Okay. Um, you're so confused. You have no idea where sorry, this is going. Sorry, I just going, realized I was making a face. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. those, those creases. I, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, this brings joy to your world, but we're going to find out. Okay. So... As I researched a little more into it, I noticed not a lot of people know much of anything about this song. So the song is known as My Mother's Savage Daughter. Do you know oh, it? I know you, of it. Yeah, that's not what the song I was thinking you were going to say. Okay. Yeah, I know of okay. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's been picked up recently as an anthem for a lot of women all around the world. When I say a lot, I mean from all walks of life, different backgrounds, everything, right? So have you heard it before? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Probably not in its entirety or yes in its entirety? No, not in its entirety. Okay, Uh, so in the social media aspect. Social media, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, we shall rectify that. Okay. So this song in itself is a powerful and moving piece, and it plays in our house alongside uh, such bands as Warjuna, Highlong, Fawn, a lot of that. It comes up on that playlist a lot. Uh, Just to name a few, it tends to be very folkish in nature is how a lot of people Um, Though it wasn't necessarily written to be that way. Not that that's a bad thing. The song was written quite recently in uh, 1990 by a lady whose name is Karen Kahan. 
but she goes by the name of Windrith Bergensdotter, which I'm pretty sure I pronounced that right. And when I looked it up, I didn't find anything. So I hope I got close. <laughs> so Windrith is an American woman of Nordic descent and possibly of German, Germanic, we shall say, descent. Uh, and she spends her days writing poetry and songs in a group called the SCA, which is known as the Society for Creative Anachronism. As my notes say, for those who don't know, because I sure as hell didn't, anachronism is a thing, event, or place out of time, than, like out of the time period that it currently is in. So think uh, like trails of history. Okay. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm -hmm. The SCA is a practical history society. They focus not just on teaching history, but on living it as well. So which kind of links up to uh, some things you and I have talked about with uh, some guests who prefer to live history as well as just read it in a book. Right, um, yeah. It's an immersive experience, and it recreates the arts and skills of pre-17th century Europe. When you are visiting, you can experience tournaments, royal courts, feasts, dancing, and learning practical skills such as calligraphy, cooking, armoring, metalworking, and carpentry, as well as needlework. And that's just a few. They have like a whole spectrum of things. And from what I understand, it looked like it was year round, but I included the link to it in okay. our sources and stuff. So anyone who's interested in it can go check it out. So the SCA, the participants, so the people who are involved in creating this, uh, they develop a persona, right, to represent an individual from the Middle Ages who might have existed. But it cannot be based on a real historical figure. So you can't show up as like King Henry V or something. Like you have to make something else. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the SCA has grown over the last 50 years. I think it said that it started as a graduation event for a lady in California. It was like this kind of nerdy thing that her friends put on for her. It's like a celebration. And it got so popular. <laughs> That it's, uh, there's more than a thousand events happening on five continents every year. So it's grown. It's is a thing. It's a deal. <laughs> what? Correct. Okay. So delving into the history part of this, although this is all history, it begs the question, what did life look like for women in the Viking age? Because specifically in Windrith's case, that's what she deals with. So that's what I uh, am bringing you today. More of a uh, nuanced day-to-day -day life for these women, right? So as I have previously discussed in episode 26, uh, shield maidens, probably mm -hmm. familiar, uh, women in the Viking age, we shall call them, because women could not actually be Vikings, because Viking was a verb, which I'm pretty sure I've probably covered before but i'm going to state it again here that. yeah mm -hmm. yes for those who may not know so if i was to go on an expedition or a raiding party i would be going viking so uh i will not refer to them as vikings in this sense because in a historical sense they lived during the viking age so they would have either been danish norse finnish or swedish Right. Scandinavian, okay. we shall say. So women of this age enjoyed more rights and freedom than female counterparts elsewhere. Uh, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that, because I think people are like, yeah, they didn't have it so bad. I mean, 
there was still traditional roles to fill, right? It still had, it was still similar to a lot of traditional civilizations when you looked at it, uh, especially archaeologically. (laughs) (laughs) So it was during the uh, Viking age, it was still considered a male dominated society, even in Scandinavia. Men did the hunting, the fighting, the trading, and the farming, while women did the cooking, caring for the home, and raising children, which is a task in and of itself. Burials have often been found to reflect uh, that this society is what one would call more traditional gender roles. Uh, Men were buried with weapons and tools, and women were buried with household items, needlework, and jewelry. And in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, Women who I think were of a higher class, I think they called it, were actually buried with keys. They almost oh, always had keys on them. It it was uh, symbolic of how they, so they were the keepers of the home, right? Which includes management of everything. <laughs> so right, yeah. as like low key as it sounds, it was possibly a little bit even more work. <laughs> because as we as i will tell you as we go on a little further sometimes their work doubled because guess what what did i say about these people when the men would go on expeditions nobody's there to do all the rest of the work that they were doing in the first place Mm -hmm. so guess who has to do it plus everything else they were already doing everybody was left yeah i.e women so women's work woman's work would probably include housekeeping making food Working wool, spinning the yarn, sewing and weaving, and of course, pregnancy and breastfeeding, which takes up a lot of time and energy. So it's thought that the women most likely looked after the children and the elderly. Makes sense, because they were probably all in the house together. Uh, When the men were called upon for an expedition, the responsibility for the farm was handed over to the woman. That's it. As soon as that ship sailed out of the fjord, it's her responsibility. So she has to secure the harvest and essentially the family's survival. By the way, on your own. Yeah. So like when they're like, yeah, she was a housekeeper. I'm like, yes, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but. (laughs) She was also like, by the way, all the stuff I do when I'm around, you got me, right? (laughs) Yeah. I'll be back. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, they'd be gone for long periods of time or years at a time never come back you know like so years at a time like yeah. you know when it so for instance if we go visit family in england it's six hours right uh, excuse me it's six hour time difference it's an eight hour flight mm-hmm. eight hour flight they're in wooden boats <laughs> which right. are still impressive like yeah, yeah you row so <laughs> it was thought that however when the men were not there when when they were present, uh, when the family's all together, regardless of sex and age, the whole household helped with daily tasks. It wasn't just like, make me a sandwich, right? Like, no, it was like, hey, you're here. Your hands are fine. You're not broken. Get to work. That that was really how this society really seemed. It's a very different, the more you get into it, it's very interesting to me because the broad strokes of this society are painted for us as these big giant berserkers these norsemen that just came in and like pillaged and raided took what they want burned down stuff and like left with riches right Right. and like so this very male dominated society but really when you look at how like the home life was run 
it really seemed a lot more like, lack of a better word, kith and kin. Like, my neighbor is my brother unless proven otherwise, you know? And if something is wrong, his wife and his family are my extended family. And, you know, we take care of each other. And what was really interesting, which I did not know, it was not uncommon to have foster children. Mm, Like, mm -hmm. if I decided, hey, mom, I'm going to go live at Eagle's house. You know, they uh, do a lot of, uh, let's say, like, what's a trade? Like, textile, like, weaving and stuff. Whereas my family are farmers and I want to learn weaving. They'd be like, okay, well, if they're fine with that, then that's fine. And that's it. You go live with them. And then at the time that you come ready for marriage, you know, my parents are going to negotiate that, you know, on my behalf, most likely with my say in it, though. It was just really interesting how they're more tightly knit Mm -hmm. than you would assume, you know, and it wasn't necessarily, like I said, it wasn't like, make me a sandwich woman. It was, you know, we're all here kind of working and helping each other. Not to say that there weren't traditional roles. There were. They definitely were. So archaeological discoveries by the University of Tubingen, T-U-B-I-N-G-E-N, Tubingen, analyzed the teeth and skeletons of human remains from this time period, right? So we're thinking about 800 CE to about 1100 CE is about the age we're looking at here. And they compared these human remains with others across Europe at the same time, roughly. Um, So they were looking for uh, the condition of the teeth enamel and the length of the femur bones. So what they found in the Scandinavian societies that they were relatively equal, almost the exact same length, and the teeth enamel did not show more decay for one gender than the other, which is super interesting. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. In an unequal society, you would expect to find permanent damage in tooth enamel, especially for girls and women who receive less food and less care than the male members of society. That was not the case here. The extent of the differences between genders is therefore a measure of the equality within the population between them. Researchers argue due to how similar both genders were in health, it was a reflection that women of the Viking age enjoyed, and this is the word that the researchers use, a remarkable amount of equality, which goes back to what I was saying before, is that they weren't necessarily looked at as lesser people of society, but you were expected to fill a role. This Mm -hmm. is what you do, and this is your job, but we all take care of each other, right? So while their sphere of power is mainly a domestic one, women of the Viking age still had pretty much unheard of levels of, like, human rights in Europe at the time. Like, insanely, right? Like, if you told the women in England that, they'd be like, what the? And they'd move out. (laughs) (laughs) So they could own property, which is insane. It really is. I don't think people realize that. I should have put a little thing together, but there's a lot here of, like, basically what it looked like elsewhere in the world. They could own property. That's a big deal. Property mm-hmm. is power, equity. They can request a divorce. Again, unheard of, especially at this time. And they can even reclaim their dowries if the marriage fell through. Oh, yeah. By the way, that shit's mine again. I love that. Right? That's really interesting. Okay. I know. Figure. So women tended to marry between uh, about 12 to 15. And it was the families that negotiated the terms of marriage, but the women did usually have a say in it. So now a father wouldn't necessarily have to be like, hey, 
I was thinking about this. Like, he could just go on and do it without asking her. But it was not unusual. Again, they weren't looked at necessarily as lesser in society. So, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it was probably one of those things where most of the time it seemed like the girls were kind of had their eyes out. They were putting those feelers out, mm-hmm. looking for uh, some... Yeah, man, they were looking for some fresh meat. So... <laughs> It was also not uncommon for women to compete amongst each other for who had the best husband. Right? I was like, (laughs) so it was thought that young girls were actually well-trained as to what to look for in a prospective husband. That's why I say it was most likely the girls who would probably like say, hey, Eric, uh, Eric's son is looking, beard's coming in nice. He's got armpit (laughs) hair now. Like we could be talking now, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that... It was probably a decent amount of them being on the lookout for, hey, you know, he's got a a broad back. He will hoe a garden like nobody else. (laughs) Because believe it or not, the people of this this society, for the most part, were farmers more than anything else. Fierce warriors when necessary. But a lot of times when those big old berserkers got back home... If they weren't, you know, in the trades or uh, doing, if they were, obviously, the higher up you are in society, your roles change a little bit. Um, A lot of them were farmers, though. Hmm. So while the man was looked at as the ruler of the household, it was the woman who managed the household as well as the husband. So this is, these are our tasks. This is what's getting done. Here your stuff, you know, do it to it. Uh, If he died, the wife adopted his role on a permanent basis. It's hers now. Single-handedly running a farm or a trade business, as well as raising children. Mm. Which, oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) I know, I was like, whew. To initiate divorce, uh, the woman had to call a witness to her home and to her marriage bed and declare in front of them that she had divorced her husband. I'm done with this sorry sack. So within the contract that the families, uh, during the courtship, you know, when you are negotiating for marriage, including dowries and whatnot, they would, at that point, kind of think of it like a prenup, right? Yep. It would usually state, before the marriage even happened, how property would be divided up in case of a divorce. Which, Mm -hmm. way to think ahead, like, way to not screw over your daughter, dude. Well, hopefully, if you were good at it. Right. I thought that was really cool. So what were some of the reasons if you had them? them oh, we're getting like, there. You okay. hang in there, girl. I'm going to hit okay. you with those right. soon. All right. So when the Spanish Arabic traveler Al Tartushi visited Hedeby in the 900s CE, he was shocked that women could divorce if they wished. Because, I mean, as you can imagine, it's yeah. that is not how it's done uh, in like uh, the Muslim culture. Very different, mm-hmm. right? So within the sagas, it is written of many divorced women and widows who marry again, which is interesting. So it's uh, evidence of a quite advanced legal system, especially, again, for that time. Right. They're ahead of their time. So grounds for divorce, here you go, Laurel, would include failure for a man to go to bed with his wife for three years. Uh, so, again, if you're gone for years on an expedition you yeah. don't make it back in time if she chose 
she could be like, you know what? Man has not done the uh, manly duties in a while. It's about time for me to find a new piece. So get out. So, okay. Okay. So would the clock start the minute the the ship road pushed back from to shore and be like, all right, you got three years. Do you think like, do you think the Vikings were like quick? It's, it's been two years get back. and 11 months. How's this like, going to leave me? We got to go boys. Let's get, let's get back there. It's we've got like, Probably. so real fast. Just from what I know about the culture and society in general, I think my, knowledge is specifically very Norwegian if that makes sense because the Danes and the Nords and the Swedes were different peoples and they did war amongst themselves plenty of the time so I'm going to try to not refer to them as a monolith so Mm. from what I have researched and understood uh your age is measured in how many winters you have lived so that's how your age was kept so perhaps it doesn't really say to answer your question. Okay. But right. I would guess, because that was very common for their timekeeping, probably how many winters he was away. Yeah. Because that would be the amount of years. Or, I mean, she could, in court, she could probably argue, hey, clock is ticking, man. Tick tock. But the, and it, a lot of uh, historians said they're like, the really probably the reason for that rule is to stop women from being lonely. Because guess what? A lonely woman is not doing what? Make a baby? Reproducing. Yeah. Problem. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, because yeah. if, you're, if you're not reproducing, your society is losing function. And, mm. you know, members who make it work. So... Is important, and there was a lot of, especially in these people, there was a lot of power and reproduction for the women, mm-hmm. which is kind of magical if you think about it. They weren't just looked at as like brood mares, essentially, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> right? Okay. They had more That's functions than just that. Yeah. Um. So another reason for grounds for divorce would be sudden poverty in the man's family, or domestic violence within the home against the woman. So if he struck his wife more than three times, she could march everybody in her house and say i'm fucking divorcing this guy i'm out Mm -hmm. so it is also worth noting along with divorce while a woman could be punished for infidelity a man could bring mistresses home however any woman brought into that house now falls under the authority of the the first wife the wife so if you want to submit yourself to her rule feel free but it's her house her rules that's a really interesting dynamic. Isn't it? So I didn't look up any examples of that, but that was sure, yeah. how that would go. So I'm going to guess it probably wasn't very common, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I could I be mean, wrong. Yeah, I, I, because I, I if she tells you to pick up the clothes and do the washing, you pick up the clothes and you do the washing. Mm-hmm. This is her house. So <laughs> I know. Be interesting. Yeah. They had a very interesting society. I mm-hmm. highly recommend looking into it if you ever have time. Um, so some women could rise to a higher status within this society, as shown by a burial at Osberg, 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 where a woman, possibly a queen, there's no way to really verify that claim, uh, was buried with a longship, which 
It's kind of a dude thing, by the way, the longship, mm-hmm. right? Because it was the men who would expedition. Uh, she had many goods, such as chests, buckets, beds, a carriage, sledges. So, like, wow. dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Uh, bedding with fine feathers and down oil lamps. Which, by the way, oil lamps were a lot of times put with kings in their burials. Or, um, king is such a weird word to use for them. Uh, chieftain. Because they were a lot more like tribes. Mm-hmm. It There were rare moments... Uh, and his name is escaping me, but Harold, Harold Fairhair, I think it was, was one who united all of Norway under one king. That was a big deal. That didn't really happen because mm-hmm. like they could work together, fight amongst each other, these tribes like that. Right. But for the most part, they kind of left each other alone. Uh, so oil lamps, tapestries, along with cooking pots, frying pans and knives. So. Along with all of these uh, accoutrements of finery, she still had the household items that told us, well, she could achieve power like a man. Women still were responsible for that hearth and home, Mm -hmm. right? Still super important. So question everybody. I know, right? (laughs) So question everybody wants to know, right? Were women involved in the fighting? Mm -hmm. So there are records of women fighting. Uh, specifically with the Var- Varangian Vikings, Vargarian, Varangian, uh, during a battle with the Bulgarians in 971 mm. CE. It was recorded by Johannes Skylitz, a Byzantine era historian. So, again, as with most things with these people, the only stuff we have is what everybody else wrote down. So, another example of a written account of women within uh, historical literature is Saxo Grammaticus. He wrote in his work the Gesta or Gesta Denorium. I don't know much about Latin, but it's probably Gesta. It's G-E-S-T-A. He writes of a shield maiden named Lagertha that fought along the famous Viking Ragnar Lothbrok. Episode number uh, 19. Mm -hmm. Uh, In battle against the Swedes, she so impressed him that he courted her and won her hand in marriage. Did it ever happen? <laughs> Big shrug. <laughs> okay. we, we may never actually know. It's difficult to know what was factually written down by Saxo, um, what was legend, you know, and scholars are super mm. hesitant, especially, again, with this kind of stuff, to give credence to legends that you can't back up with archaeological evidence. So sure. if you can't prove it, it didn't happen. But... um. You and I spoke with one of our previous guests about we discount too much oral history, and I firmly believe that. And I believe mm. that there's a lot wrapped up in there that I think legend is woven in amongst a lot of it, along with, you know, true historical events and stuff like that. And that's how we passed it down, right? So mm-hmm. did it happen? Maybe. You know, it's kind of fun to think of that it did, right? In this society, yeah. it's not unheard of. That a woman would be capable of such a thing. So, possibly. Most of what we know about women in the Viking Age, we know from literary sources, as I've stated before, including evidence of women warriors. These female warriors probably inspired the Valkyries, within the sagas especially, who, incidentally, are Odin's female servants, whose name means choosers of the slain. 
So, <laughs> right? So cool. Yeah. So they selected warriors on the field of battle who died to take to Valhalla. Um, and now I had read somewhere else where those who were not chosen, well, you could go to, um, what was the other option? Helheim, uh, which is another afterlife. So Valhalla is the, you're at the feast with Odin. You've been specifically selected by Odin to sit at that table, right? That's a high honor. And only certain people got that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had written it in here, but I couldn't find uh, the source that I had it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Is If I remember correctly, I thought those who weren't chosen to go uh, were devoured by Odin's wolves, Gary and Freki. <laughs> they kind of follow him around and like devour people on the battlefield. Oh, it's no. pretty intense, dude. Okay. I mean, it happens, man. <laughs> so- that's terrifying you you can't all sit at this table (laughs) (laughs) better make it worth it if you're gonna yeah okay so like you like you really you know as the saying goes like you go out on your shield kind of thing like you're yeah you do man for it yeah in this society yeah you do Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) make it count (laughs) yeah Because if you're going to lose your farm, your woman, and all your other stuff, you might as well make it count. Hopefully you go to Valhalla. You hope oh so. Gosh. Or Helheim. The other option isn't bad either. But Oh, okay. I thought you were saying like Helheim. And then you were, you went to start, start saying it wasn't that bad. And I was like, oh. But then you started talking about not, the wolves that devour. And I was like, that doesn't sound There nice. are wolves that, but that might be the enemies. That's the thing is I was kind of doing research. But this, there was so oh, okay. much to get through for just mm-hmm. the women specific part that I was looking True. into that. And I was like, well, I'll mention it. And those who want to look can research into Gary and Frecky if they wish. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. So, well, probably not common. It seems fairly certain that women did occasionally take up arms to fight, especially when their family or their property was threatened. Hell Bitch, yeah. try me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A study <Absolutely>. published. In, right. <laughs> A study published in 2014 where researchers used mitochondrial DNA shows evidence that Norse women joined their men of the Viking Age migrations to England. And to the islands of Shetland, Orkney, and of course to Iceland, right? Iceland is this big settled place. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was one of their biggest colonies. Women were important agents of the processes of migration and assimilation, particularly in the uninhabited places such as Iceland. Without Norse women, the new settlements would never have happened. And that's the truth. So mm-hmm. they did go at some point. It was not unheard of that women showed up on ships with men now was it probably that there were war parties sent ahead to secure probably and probably people came after right bringing the women and their families and whatnot okay um but again who's to say maybe you know maybe uh eagle loves having his lady along with him and maybe she's fucking good at it i don't know (laughs) right yeah so uh, another story of like, uh, I guess a warrior woman or the importance of women in the settling of a society is in the later ninth century, Aud, A-U-D, Aud, the deep-minded, was a daughter of a Norwegian chieftain from the, forgive me, Scottish listeners, uh, Hebrides, Hebrides, there were islands off the, uh, north coast of Scotland. 
right? And it was pretty common for them to come down because they're up here. Scotland's right here. Sure. Yeah. Row, row, row your boat. And there they were. So <laughs> she married a Viking king of Dublin, which I discuss in episode number 39. Mm-hmm. So after, unfortunately, her husband and son died, Oud uprooted her household. She put together a ship's voyage and, and included her grandchildren, and they sailed off to Iceland. So she put it together. She led it and became one of the colony's most important settlers in Iceland. A woman. Wow. Not a man. A woman. (laughs) And then there's that whole thing, though, that, you know, you find this in a lot of places where their family dies, their partner dies, you know, something like that. And then they take up the mantle. Somebody's got to do it. And by golly, they were right there to take it. I mean... I I I think it's, yeah, super impressive, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. These mighty women of legend are not only responsible for their homesteads and their families and their communities when their men were away, they were also largely responsible for the teaching of history. Women of the Viking Age were practice storytellers, and they carried on oral tradition for centuries until these legends and lessons were captured in writing in the Icelandic sagas, the prose edda, the poetic eddas, these written accounts that we finally have of these people which are just teeny tiny little snapshots Mm. that's like all we have again besides what is uncovered you know in digs and stuff like that so which brings us back to windrith so if you have not listened to this song in its entirety it will be down in the show notes a direct youtube link to the lady who wrote it is singing it so sung by the writer so i'll put that one in there specifically Uh, And I encourage you to listen to it now before the conclusion of this story. If you are in a safe place to do so, I would pause, listen, and come back. Women, welcome back. (laughs) If you took your break. Uh, Many of the women at the SCA and Women of Water, it's a blog run um, in a combination of women. uh, How would I describe it? It's ladies who are super. And men, I suppose, but it is centered more towards women um, on keeping uh, history practices from history alive, probably is a good way to say it. And it's kind of a blog about these things. So that's where Windrith first posted her song. The women of this blog, you know, they are song keepers, poetry tellers. uh, And she left her words and comments about her piece that she wrote in the early 1990s. And that is... What I'm going to read to you now, and that way we can all kind of get a good understanding of why the song was written and what it means. These are Windrith's words. Hi, folks. Just stop by and want to thank every one of you for your support and your kind words. As with most of my writing in the SCA, it's based upon Viking age cultures and the style of recreating oral traditions. I do a lot of that, yes. I study and I work hard to represent what was lost to us. This song, however, has a will and a meaning of its very own. In 1990, I woke up with the chorus in my head, and as soon as I found a pen, the rest of it poured out. The tune came that same day. It was clear to me that this was a song that wanted to be sung by anyone who found it within their own voice. It is an anthem of empowerment, not a song meant to serve a specific uh, blood or people or skin. If you find strength and power in your own voice in it, This is your song, and I hope you sing it with strength and rage and beauty and power that is within you. 
whoever you may be. Women are never less than. We are the singers of storms, the fire made flesh, the inexorable power of the mountains, the kind warmth and cutting lash of the wind. We are half of the world and we have been taught to speak softly and behave mildly because we are easier to control that way. I am honored that daughters of the first peoples find a voice here and the daughters of the sea wolves and the daughters of great grandmothers, grandmothers and mothers wherever they lived and sang and died. All of you are living legacies and they hear you singing. Be assured they are proud of you. Whoever you are, you have a voice that cannot be silenced. Together with our voices cannot be unheard. Thank you and sing. Uh, the tradition of song and storytelling is kind of a part of who we are as our core as humans and how we for years documented and kept our history through the centuries. So in spirit in honor of all of that, that is why I chose this story to bring to you today. And hopefully as a little bit of women empowerment and hopefully a special treat for Laurel because she loves women's history. And this was really written for you. I do. I do. Thank you. That was really nice. And that was a very unique take on um, just kind of a, a day in the life of a woman in the Viking age. And we appreciate that, connecting that to more contemporary, more modern history that we might mm -hmm. know, especially like, again, yeah, I heard that song all over TikTok mm -hmm. and Instagram and stuff like that. And yep. um, I thought it was a lovely song. I've never heard it all the way through. I was just like, oh, that's, that's nice. So it's nice to have that connection to something that people might have heard and recognize. Probably, probably most have heard it. And to be honest, like I was <laughs> scrolling the comment section in a lot of these and I was like, damn, I was like, people are like way off on this stuff. Like people are like the fights that break out. And I was like, all right, mm. I got to settle this once and for all. Let's put, <laughs> let's put the facts down on the page, man. Mm -hmm. In your ears. <laughs> on the page to be said with my mouth to your ears. <laughs> hey there, I hope you're doing great. I know this episode is particularly long, so I'm going to keep this short. Plus, I'm not on my microphone, so you probably can hear my dishwasher in the background right now. <laughs> but hey, I just want to say Thanks for making 2023 such a great year for us, and we hope to make 2024 even better. If you're not doing so already, please make sure that you are subscribed or following the show so that way you get announcements and alerts to when the next episode comes out. And also give us a follow over on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok. All of our social media accounts are directly linked in our show notes below. And we would love to connect with you outside of the show. And also liking and subscribing and sharing the show with other people is an amazing way to help us grow and help support us in a way that's free and easy for you to do. And if you'd like to support our show further, we do now have a Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash hightailing through history and for a few bucks a month, then you can help support our show, help what we're doing around here, help our show grow and get some extra content as a thank you. Have bonus episodes called half-baked episodes, behind the scenes content, um, extra interviews, things like that. That's over at patreon.com forward slash hightailing through history. Next up, I have a little walk down memory lane with some of the most popular toys of the 20th century. So with that, let's puff puff pass it on to part two.
All right. <laughs> All right, Katie. Well, you had a little bit of um, 90s nostalgia in yours. I'll you have a little say? bit in mine, too. <laughs> so some of our most beloved and nostalgic toys have some interesting history behind them. Sometimes how they were created related to big historical events or figures, or their arrival ignited historic reactions or revolutions and how toy making evolved. So for my half of the episode today, I'm going to go through some of the most beloved toys of the 20th century that have an interesting little backstory to them. I feel like some of these you you might know, um, some might be completely new, or you've heard a story about it, but it's not the right story, you know what I mm. mean, that kind of thing. So this, I can't wait to hear. I know like technically when this airs, this is going to be past Christmas time, but I thought people might still be in like that holiday glow, you know, between Christmas and Hanukkah, Festivus, (laughs) Yule, (laughs) New Year, all that sort of stuff. You know, got got it all going on. So um, I thought it would still be in the glow of it. Probably. And if you celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, if that's your thing. Uh, no. technically it doesn't end till January 6th, the epiphany day. So you got time. <laughs> uh, really? We're right in the middle of, of all the festivities. Kicking off the 20th century with one of the most iconic toys of all time, with its connection to one of America's most recognizable and also iconic presidents, Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. <laughs> the teddy bear. Yeah. Oh, duh. Here's me. I'm like, yeah. big horse. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The teddy bear. Yeah, the teddy bear. So in case you didn't know, Roosevelt was a naturalist and a conservationist, right? That was like part of his whole legacy. And in the early 20th century, I love this because like a lot of conservationists, I don't love this. It's like ironic to me, I should say. A lot of conservationists were also big game hunters. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, to my mind, I know there's probably people are listening that I'd be like, yeah, duh, Laurel, that makes sense. But in my mind, they're very uh, contradictory. (laughs) (laughs) So beyond the the fishing and and hunting, you know, for food and animal-based resources in which the Mm -hmm. whole animal's getting used and there's, you know, reasons, especially like spiritual and cultural reasons, there you go, around (laughs) hunting and fishing. Stomach, I mean. Sorry, it was stomach. (laughs) But some would, like, shoot a bear or like mm-hmm. I guess like a lion or an elephant and get it mounted and put it in the smoking room of their house and then stand there with a cigar and a whiskey and like tell their friend next to him and be like, you see this big brute? I tracked it down and shot it myself. Mm-hmm. You know, like truly magnificent creatures. We must really protect them in their environment. You How know. terrifying to be walking around your house at night though. Like the grizzly, like, no. I would shit it. my pants. Like <laughs> lightning strikes. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> And that's the classic horror movie thing, or like someone's wandering around the house. There's Every got like a time. suit of armor, and there's like a grizzly bear that's Always. stuffed, and then like the lightning flashes, and it's just yep. tear, like terrifying face and claws. Yeah, yeah, I can't do it. My, uh... we need to be filmmakers. Yeah, <laughs> should do, but uh, no, my constitution is not. I can't walk around my house and have. I'm looking for real monsters, not pretend monsters. Stop faking me out like that. Yeah, man. don't. I don't need that. So yeah, there there they are, conservationists and you know, whatever. That and so Theodore Roosevelt was a naturalist and conservationist. And on one of his hunting trips on the Mississippi Delta, nineteen oh two, early in his presidency, he went down there with the sole goal, like the sole the main idea is to hunt a black bear. It said that he searched 
the area for days and didn't see a single black bear. But his hunting companions found an old and injured black bear and then tied it to a willow tree and hmm. said, look here, Mr. President, now you can bag yourself a black bear. We can go on home. This will be great. Uh, and, you know, claim your victory kind of thing. And Roosevelt was horrified. And he said, a man of honor could never, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. That's not an honorable thing to do. Mm -mm. No. And you're right. It's, he is right. You're right, Teddy. It's not. It's not it's an not. honorable thing to do at all. So he asked that the bear, I, 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 this is what I assume here from the, from how the story is told, but he asked that quickly euthanized, but of its misery because mm -hmm. it's sick and old and dying. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, th this story captures the attention of the country. They're like, oh, our president, what a man, you know, what a, what a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man, some might say. An editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post, Clifford K. Berryman, created a series of cartoons of the event. He's like showing the bear as this small, it's like wide eyes and scared. It's a youthful face. It's just like, oh, it's a little tiny, poor, helpless bear kind of thing. And in Brooklyn, candy store owner Morris Victim and his wife Rose saw a marketing opportunity and uh, Rose started sewing a stuffed version of a little teddy bear and placed it in their store window and called it Teddy's Bears. Oh. And it was immediately sold. And so Rose just basically made as many as her little hands would allow. And yeah, so they called them Teddy's Bears in honor of the president. Yeah. Factory production began in 1903 when Rose, like, obviously couldn't keep up with the demand with all of her hand sewing, right? You know? um, I, I wrote, it reminds me of Happy Gilmore, you know, in the movie Happy Gilmore. Or, I've never um, seen it. Um, ben I Stiller. know, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's on okay. the list. That's right. Ben Stiller is uh, like a, a caretaker at a nursing home and he's a real asshole. <laughs> and he's having the, the the little old ladies like sewing quilts and stuff like that. And he's on the phone. He's like, yeah, these are handmade uh, quilts sewn by little grandmas and like his pleasure doing business with you kind of thing. And this little lady, she's like, my fingers hurt. He goes, I'm sorry, what's that? She's like, my fingers hurt. And he goes, well, now your back's going to hurt from pulling, pulling lawn duty. Oh. <laughs> he's just, he's a jerk. Anyway, so that's what it made me think of. My fingers hurt. Nursing home abuse. <laughs> it's such a silly movie, you know, but, yeah. uh, but it's good. Anyway, coincidentally, a German company named Steiff just happened to be also making stuffed bears because they just thought that would be a, a good thing to do. And uh, and they also did that in 1903 and sold 3,000 of them to a department store in Manhattan. Now, although Roosevelt didn't like the nickname Teddy, uh, at mm -hmm. one point he called it an outrageous impertinence. It's <laughs> the most 1904 thing to say, you know. So um, funny. <laughs> like, just the way he, like, verbiages things is way too much for me. <laughs> It's interesting, interesting mm -hmm. man. Um, so, Definitely. but he did think like leaning into this teddy bear thing would have been a good idea on the campaign trail. And mm -hmm. you know, he, when he ran for like re-elections, like election, because he became president because McKinney was shot, so he like right. ran for re-election, I guess technically, in 1904. And he displayed one of the victim teddy bears in the White House, and that was like his little thing. And it and it yeah. worked. It was this cute yeah. little kind of little bear, and it did the trick, and it also helped the sales of the teddy bear in general and to the point where even the german company steif adopted the american name teddy, teddy bear. bear yeah because they were just stuffed animals that looked like bears you know but they just went with the teddy bear after that that's what it was called around the world after that was a teddy bear still is yeah so cute I love this part though. The this the sweet innocent little toy is not without its controversy though. And mm. 
although it was a very small minority of people, I thought it was worth mentioning because it was just, it, it actually made me ha ha out loud. Because mm-hmm. there's always somebody, right? There's always somebody that's going to have like a disagreement about always. something. It doesn't matter how sweet something is. Someone's going to be like, um, excuse me. Um, actually. Oh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. I'm here to rain on the parade. Here on the rain on the parade. The problem was that little girls would like the teddy bear over a human-like doll and would therefore become less nurturing to babies and the birth rates would decline. And I put in LOL, Katie. What? Now, something to keep in mind is that this is the same time period when child labor was a common practice, although it is waning by this point, thanks to Upton Sinclair and new labor laws and things like that. The jungle. The jungle. There it is. Everybody read it. Uh, but but there was this time when people were like, maybe just let our kids be kids for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, let them, let them play with their stuffed animals and mm-hmm. have a little bit of joy in their lives instead of sending them to a factory, you know, like right. that kind of thing. And I know that that was, that's privilege speaking, you know, being able to say like, we need everyone in our family to work in order to right. get by. But or we can't pay rent. Yeah. Right. Just saying, like, child labor laws were coming into okay, play. Okay, but then when little Timmy is done at sewing after his six-hour shift, he can come home and play with his teddy bear. How about that? <laughs> From the very early 1900s on, the teddy bear has been beloved by both children and adults alike and is seen as both a plaything and also a source of comfort in turbulent times. My source for that actually mentioned that during World War II that there were soldiers that would sometimes have a little teddy bear in their the rec sack and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I get it. <laughs> Could understand mm-hmm. that. So next up we have Lincoln logs. Yes. <laughs> A personal favorite. <laughs> yeah. I remember you did have some. Oh, um, you never had Lincoln logs? No. Oh, I played me. with them at like babysitter's houses and stuff. I didn't own any myself. That's sad. It's all right. You could have always come wasn't really that into them. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't really that into them. It's all right. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's one of the most popular toys of the 1920s, and it was inspired by earthquake-resistant architecture and was created by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, John. Of course it was. Yeah, I didn't realize. Wrights are had so brilliant. Had a connection to them. Right. I, I had no idea about this. So the Wright family are from Oak Park, Illinois, so it's not too terribly far from, from us. So there's a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright houses in in the area, in the city, up in southern Wisconsin as well, Mm -hmm. too. So we have a lot of them around in our area. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, as well as around the world, but he is, I would say, and maybe I don't know if this is like the geographical proximity that is making me say this, but I would say he is the most famous architect, or at least the most famous American architect in the world. Probably, because I couldn't name another one. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know the architects that put together like big cathedrals and I probably should. Yeah. I don't know. So that's what I'm saying. Maybe it might be like the geographical proximity where I'm like, oh yeah, yeah him. Because, Definitely probably know. one of the most famous American architects without a doubt. Sure. Because again, I couldn't name another one. His son, John, was the second of six children that were born to him and his wife. And he later decided to follow in his dad's footsteps and become an architect. Though he didn't have any proper schooling, he did manage to get a job as a designer for architect Harrison Albright. Just blag your way into that job. That's cool. <laughs> but he did it. I mean, he got some commissions. <laughs> and it worked. My dad yeah. is so-and-so. All right, you're hired. Like, probably yeah. not that whether, hard. Well, yeah, whether or not he knew what he was doing. But he got some commissions, so it gave him some experience. And then he's like, I want to continue my education. 
So I'm going to go to Austria and work for Otto Wagner. Oh, nice. But I need a little little help to, to get me over there, Father. Mm. Can I have just a little, little financial boost to go over to Europe and, and apprentice for this man? And Frank writes back a letter. He says, I'd like to know what Otto Wagner can do for you that your father can't. Oh, all right. Dad, I was just trying to pave my own way, but okay. Yeah, sure. Dude. Gotcha. Yeah. So he becomes his father's apprentice and he goes to Tokyo with him to start work on this major commission, which was the Imperial Hotel. And after 16 months of working on this project, John and his father had this argument over all of John's unpaid wages mm. <laughs> and salary for this. Don't work for and, family. Yeah. And, and so his dad fired him. I was yeah. like, oh, I, I found out Ouch. this is just one quick article just to like learn about Lincoln Logs. But I was like, oh, I don't know how much I actually like Frank Lloyd Wright as a human being. You know, like he, there's there are some not nice things that he was. I was like, oh, OK. So anyway, so his mm-hmm. dad or sorry, John has kind of had it with his dad there. He's like, all right, fine. Fired. I'm going to find my own way. Um, he's no longer an architect, but he has some of these architect skills and he tries to make a living designing and selling wooden toys to uh, Chicago's famous, though now defunct, department store chain, Marshall Fields. Mm. Mm, I know. That was a Chicago company? Mm-hmm. Damn. Yeah. That, it wasn't the, in New York? Store. No, because there's Macy's. Oh. Theirs was always Macy's. Ours was always Marshall Fields. Oh, my age is showing. Ours. I didn't realize they were different. Says, it's okay. Well, because Macy bought Marshall Fields. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those bastards. Yeah. So the Marshall Fields downtown <laughs> is now at Macy's. So John uses his father's design from the Imperial Hotel, which was mm. like these interlocking piece, like joints, like just mm-hmm. like a Lincoln log, the inner joint. Yeah. And that's what made it earthquake resistant. And it was just yeah. interlocked like that. Yeah. Uh, John later also created something called right blocks, which were just classic building blocks, but, and they had kind of a similar sort of interlocking function, but they weren't. They weren't Lincoln Logs, which is what right. really took off for him. The naming of the popular toy, however, is occasionally debated, though there really seems to be kind of like the one main accepted answer. Some say it was just a little nod to his dad. because His dad's last name was Lincoln before he changed it to Lloyd. Oh. Now, the more popular and accepted answer, however, is that it was evocative of the old American frontier and Abraham Lincoln and um, who lived in a cap- capitalizing on this wave of American patriotism that was coming out around, you know, the wake of World War One, like, oh, sure. we won America, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. he's like really trying to capture that's the spirit of that. Um, and it came with instructions on how to build two famous log cabins, Abraham Lincoln's mm-hmm. and fictional Uncle Don, Uncle Tom's cabin from Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel of the same name. So it came with yep. instructions on how to build those couple log cabins. Lincoln Logs were inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 1999 alongside the Duncan Yo-Yo, the Hula Hoop, Roller Skates, Radio Flyer Wagon, a little red wagon, you know, yes. and the Viewmaster. Oh, what's that? A Viewmaster. So Viewmaster, I almost did the Viewmaster for this. It was, um, I had like one. Click through yes. the pictures? They still exist, but I yeah. had I had an old one from like 80 six or something and it was blue and it was like they look like little binoculars mm-hmm. and put like a little disc in there that had my babysitter little, had you go and it would mm-hmm. be three-dimensional pictures and that was actually something that got developed i want to say during like world war ii sort of time oh okay 
shoot. It was it was originally built to be used as a way to do like 3D imaging for some sort of piece of equipment. Yeah. Like I said, I nearly did that one. So I did read a little bit on it, but um, since I didn't write about it, it didn't stick in my brain. So, gotcha. um, but it was, it had, it did have some interesting history, but yeah, the Viewmaster was a three-dimensional like projector slide, like slide mm-hmm. projectors thing that you could look at. Yeah. Mine had, uh, I had like a Sesame Street one, I had a <laughs> Fraggle Rock one, and then I had one that was just like popular cartoons, like Saturday morning cartoons. Mm-hmm which had like He-Man on there and <gasps> Muppet Babies and something like that. Like it had a bunch of He-Man? like the, yeah. He-Man's worth <laughs> that. It's fun. Viewmaster. Uh, hey, Katie, did you know that pop-up books have some weird and lengthy history behind them? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> pop-up books. Yeah. Now, honestly, I thought this was, I thought pop-up books existed because somebody at the publishing company was just like, hey, like, what if we make the pictures like pop out in people's faces? Like, we right. make them come alive. Very like, exciting. That might be a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Like, let's work on that. Right. Uh, but I found out pop-up books weren't originally, originally meant for the little kitties. Oh. And that they were instead made for scholarly adults. Oh, I thought you were going to tell students. me it was pornography. I was like, whoa. Made them for tits, basically. <laughs> no, it's uh, name, students of mathematics, science, navigation, technology, medicine, and philosophy. Interesting. So the, the moving flaps and the pictures and stuff like that were particularly yeah. helpful in illustrating concepts in these subjects. And I was thinking, like, yeah, having once been in an anatomy and Kinesiology I was just going to say it would was, be great for anatomy because there's totally a lot of little. So I'll put the picture up here. There it is. Of um, oh, why didn't the anatomy they book. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's what a great How idea. Much easier would anatomy have been to learn if you had a fun pop up book that you could interact with? Yeah, I I loved it, and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. And now that you can see like an anatomy book, how that's been put together. I'm like, oh, what a great idea. And uh, as time went on, the invention of the printing press allowed for advancements in bookmaking, as well as making them more accessible, too, so like more people could read. Mm-hmm. The growing middle class looked to books made for children to help with teaching manners, numbers, letters, religious concepts, and then, you know, of course, like entertainment, too. But the pop-up book format was used for that purpose, you know, lift a flap, number one, you know, the... Right apple for a you know things like that though the pop-up book as we might think of it today goes back to the 19th century in terms of actual pop-up pictures and and that kind of stuff the pop-up book's origin story goes all the way back to 1121 ce which is how it stands at this point unless historians find any books that go further back but as of right at now, the end of the viking age man yeah mm-hmm. we've got stuff weave you know me and my historian friends we've got a bunch of things in you our know. archives <laughs> out back there i catalog uh, just look through it like it's like the indiana jones warehouse you know at the end of uh, raiders of the lost ark the whole right thing. um anyway <laughs> so we have the the earliest surviving manuscript had a had a bunch of flaps and you know things to open in it kind of like the marauders map it opened up like that you know uh so yeah that goes back to 1121 and then the first volvel which was a spinning dial that dates back to 1250 and as you might be able to imagine the nature of these books you know with their little strings and flaps and tabs and moving pieces of paper they're challenging to preserve so yeah like 
they're trying to do the best they can with preserving these books. But yeah, there are a lot of different examples of them throughout history. And I think my favorite thing that I learned about with the pop-up book was how it was often used in mysticism, mysticism as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ramon Yulia. Oh man, I hope I got that. It was Catalan Spanish. So (laughs) Ramon Yulia. He was a Catalan mystic. He was born near Mallorca in 1232, 1233 sort of time. And his writings not only helped develop the Romance Catalan language, so there's that, which is a really cool um, achievement in your life to have, <laughs> to have done, but he also influenced the Neoplatonic mysticism throughout Europe in the medieval times. And then again, through the initial phases of the Age of Enlightenment, when everyone was like really into philosophy, which we were talking about with uh, Christina of Sweden a couple episodes back too. His teachings were intended to support Roman Catholic missionary work, like why we as missionaries for the Catholic Church go out and do what we do. Mm-hmm. But it was also used to um, try and unify a bunch of different branches of thought and ideas and spirituality. Get everybody on the same page. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, the reason why he's often brought up in the history of the pop-up book is that he would often use those vovels, the dials, in calculating dates and then showing astrological positions of stars and to illustrate and predict spiritual and mystical ideas. Ramon. Ramon. So moving on to the board game that destroys relationships and lives. Oh, Monopoly. Monopoly. (laughs) Monopoly. That's the one. You don't bring that up in our house. Folks, I have seen... I've seen with my eyes and heard with my ears some of the most outrageous shit Katie has said to her lovely partner, Blake, <laughs> to the point where I'm just like, I'm just, I'll just sit in my little corner and count my money because I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Listen, he's all, so patient. All ties, so patient. all ties in love and everything are out the door when Monopoly is on the table. Oh. And so it's the best-selling Christmas toy of 1937, which is pretty interesting because it's right in those Great Depression Depression. years. (laughs) Right. Towards the end of it, sure, but right in there. And I think that means something. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's, well, I think now it's, it's grown into something where it's such, it could be such a violent game and really create some problems. it always is too. (laughs) But maybe at this time it wasn't so bad, but. The concept of it yeah. is interesting, especially, like I said, Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And during this time period, the original game included the origin story right on the box. And it was that an unemployed man by the name of Charles Darrow came up with the game as a way to pass time with his family and friends. During the Great Depression, he's like, hey, we were When all unemployed. they had was bacon, grease, and bread. Yeah. And that's <laughs> how they lived. It's Did like, you know our what... grandfather ate bacon, grease sandwiches during the Great Depression? Yeah, people ate all kinds of things that... You know, needed to do what they I mean, needed to do. Yeah, but like mom said that, and I just dead ass like stared at her, and I was like, "Was it good?" <laughs> and she looked at me. She's like, "I don't know that they were worried about that." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I feel you, but damn, have you tried it?" <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty gross, actually. But um, so yeah, and his whole thing was he brought Monopoly to the game company, Parker Brothers, you know, very famous game company, Parker sure. Brothers in 1934 and eventually became a millionaire, which really gives the energy of that, like, 
you too can become a millionaire if you pull yourself right. up by a bootstrap study and invent an amazing board game. I got to use my 1930s radio voice on that one because we are actually in the 1930s. So <laughs> I was really looking forward to it. I was like, yes, it's 1930s. You should do a story on um, Seabiscuit. Yeah, Harry comes around the corner. He's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's in the 30s, so. Okay, perfect. I'll just do it like that the entire time and you no one will listen should. to it. Oh, I, like, I would. Stop with the stupid voice. I'm like, I can't. I can't help it. I can't help it. It's like telling me not to be violent during Monopoly. It's not going <laughs> to happen. But hey, here's the thing. Do you know that the story that Monopoly puts on his box, it's not true. What? And the real story is actually much more sad and kind of shows like this dark side of oh boy capitalism, which is really funny because that's what the game is about. Out, yeah. And it like the parallels are really interesting. It's a really so, crushing game. You ever notice that? Like yeah. when everyone just buys you out and you just sit there sadly as your entire life like mm-hmm. whittles away before your eyes and your little fake ass paper money. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why you you feel like that. Okay. So Monopoly actually began in 1903 as a little game called The Landlord's Game. Oh, boy. Invented by a woman named Lizzie Maggie. Oh, an angry Lizzie woman. worked as a typist and a stenographer in Washington, D.C. at what was called the Dead Letter Office, which is like where all the misrouted mail well, this was a repository for lost mail in the country. Now, that sounds like uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure it's not it as fun in my head. Yeah. I'm like, I want to go where all the letters come to die. And what is your job there? Like what I, I just needed, I needed to know everything about that. But anyway, that was what Lizzie did, but she was also uh, a writer. She was an artist. She wrote poetry, would appear in plays and even patent a little gadget for the typewriter that allowed different sizes of paper to go through, oh. which then allowed for more words to get on a single page because it allowed more space for the you could adjust the margins, margins in other words yeah 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 okay uh-huh. that's what i'm that's how i read it okay which is great she's a little inventor as well and she invents a little game called the landlord's game which was based on the teachings of anti-monopolist henry george who argued that governments didn't have the right to tax labor only to tax land the game was patented in 1904 and then a patented revision 20 years later in 1924. But she pitched the idea to Parker Brothers in 1910, and they decided against publishing. They're like, no, nah, not for us right now. Her <laughs> then the Great Depression game board, <laughs> Yeah, right. Her game board looks very similar to the Monopoly board that we know. So hopefully I have a picture of it up here. So as opposed to games before where there was a beginning and the end, Think of like Candyland or Shoots and Ladders. There's a beginning mm-hmm, to the sure. game. There's an end of the game. Yep. But Monopoly was the first game board or the landlord's game where you could go around and around and around and around and around. Yeah. And there was no stopping. The you torture never ends. <laughs> it just kept going and going. To me, it really symbolizes you, that vicious cycle of, I just got to make it to payday, which is like pass and go. And you're just sitting mm-hmm. there like, just praying, praying for the next yeah. one. Then the landlord takes uh-huh. all your money and. Oh my God, boy, does this feel familiar. Yeah. Yep. There it is. There it is. And your relationship ends. (laughs) (laughs) There is a go to jail spot. There was a a public, there was public park, which was later became free parking. But then there's properties that you bought and railroads and utilities and all these different things. It was very, very similar 
gameplay. It's really horrible. Now that you're putting it out there, I'm like, why do we fucking uh-huh. play this? This game sucks. Right. No, and her idea, and this is this is what really is kind of sucks about this whole thing, is that, well, she had a vastly different intent for the an idea for the gameplay. In Monopoly, you try to accumulate wealth and properties in order to crush your foes <clears throat> under the, the mighty weight of your little Scotty Dog token, which is my favorite token. Unless... Unless I wanted to also use the top hat and give my opponent seal razzle dazzle, you know, that would be, that's how I did that. Scotty dog or top hat, nothing else. Trying to anyway. think what I picked. What would you be? I can't, I'm trying to remember what the original ones were because there's a T-Rex now and I always pick that one because oh. obviously. Um, there's the car, there's the hat, there's the little Scotty dog, there's the thimble, the there's thimble. the shoe and there's an iron. It was usually the car. And then I would just be sad and pout the entire time if I didn't get what I wanted. Cool. Because that sounds yeah. like a good way to do it. I mean, listen, we I was like seven when we played this Laurel <laughs> and I was a younger sibling. So that's totally get it. Just what totally you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And that was the thing. You just bankrupt your, your opponents into submission, really. By the way, Laurel's really good at it. Am I? Am I good at Monopoly? Is you, that a thing? Is that a skill I have? That is why I got, I turned into such a vicious Monopoly player. You, here we go. History you don't know about. You would crush the shit out of me every time. And I got so bent out of shape about it that I internalized that for years. And now when I play Monopoly, I'm like, I'm going to crush my foes under my heel of capitalism so that they don't even have the the strength oh, to live no. their normal daily lives outside of this game <laughs> so yeah so i mean don't be sorry you can apologize to everyone oh, who's played monopoly oh. against me <laughs> wow i didn't i didn't realize that i'm sorry but uh no well, it's hey, great. lessons taught <laughs> lessons learned it's uh it's something you know it's it's funny because like there's there's some games that you play with certain family members right and they're really good at them like christian's really good at scrabble to the point where i actually don't really enjoy playing with him because he's so good at it yeah i'm like oh he thinks of like the best words and i'm not that eloquent uh uh well yahtzee which is not really a game of skill necessarily Mm -hmm. it's just like it's luck right so it's right anyone can win Mm -hmm. but i anytime i want to play that christian's like no no, I don't want to play that against you ever again. I was like, why? He's yeah. like, he's like, you won Yahtzee. And I was like, yeah, that's it, the point. It's you like, you don't win, like win at the game. He's like, you've won it. You've done it. Certificate of completion. You've got like the highest score I've ever seen ever on Yahtzee, which is true. I got actually a bunch of Yahtzees in one game. Just, just a bunch of them. <laughs> like I had to write them off on the side of the paper. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just lucky. <laughs> I remember like, you were trying act- to flip the board. He was so pissed. He was like, I remember I never played Yahtzee as a kid because you were so good at it. And I get mm. it. It's a game of skill. But you would play it with mom a lot at the dining room oh, table. Okay. I wouldn't play it because I was, uh, I I was, what would you say, intimidated by it. Like, because you, <laughs> you won Yahtzee a lot. So laugh as you will, Laurel. You won Lotsie, uh, Yahtzee a lot. Lotsie. Uh, what's I another one Lotsie. that you like? You pwned at. And it's probably given me a complex for all these years. Were you the... It's okay. I'll get over it. Um, except for Monopoly. I'll never get over that. But <laughs> uh, Was it Uno? 
Oh, Clue. Oh, yeah, I'm really good at Clue. Yeah, she's amazing <laughs> at Clue. To the point where her husband just... Oh, that's right. <sighs> I'll let you he's tell He's so stroppy, story. isn't he? He's, yes. he's, he's sometimes he's, like playing with the towel. He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. He's a poor uh, loser. <laughs> he is a poor loser. He is. But yeah, so for whatever reason, you're yeah. really good at board games. Okay. Um, I didn't realize I had that skill, but now I'm going to put that on my resume and hope for the best. You should do. Mm -hmm. So Ms. Maggie, Maggie's game, her gameplay was divided into two sets of rules. Monopolist, which is kind of like what we understand it as today for the most part, and then anti-monopolist rules. But the goal of the game was to, to demonstrate the evils of accruing vast amounts of wealth at the expense of others. Right. Right. Like you said, like you sure. sit there and you're like, you get bankrupted and you're like, this is terrible. And this is so sad and isolating and, and awful. Right. Yeah. You feel mm -hmm. like you're like soul you crushed like from your body, dude. Yeah. And that's what she's trying to highlight is like, when you're doing these things at the expense of others, like that's when capitalism is, is bad. That's the mm -hmm. point that she's trying to make at least. It's your you know, sister whether you agree to that or not. Like, that's just how the game is played, Katie. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just how it goes. And she even said to a reporter in 1906, uh, quote, in a short time, I hope a very short time, men and women will discover that they are poor because Carnegie and Rockefeller maybe have more than they know what to do with. Yep. Preach, sister. I get it, sis. Yeah. <laughs> the game the game was published by a small Chicago and small New York companies, okay. but it really didn't gain a lot of traction, unfortunately. However, a homemade version of it passed around all different kinds of circles, East Coast intellectuals frat boys at Williams College, uh, Quakers in Atlantic City and on the East Coast. What? And it did so, I know, it did so for decades. They, and that was actually a very common thing uh, when I was researching this, that board games or, you know, popular games would end up getting a homemade version of it and they kind Bootleg. of like passed around, you know, bootleg <laughs> version, right, exactly. And so I also think that's how we get a lot of these like home rules, you know, mm -hmm. as you mentioned with yep. Monopoly, like a lot of people, groups of people have certain ways that they play it. Yeah, if you land on free parking, all the money goes in the middle so that there's some chance for those who are bankrupt to pull themselves out of poverty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it was one of these homemade versions. In fact, it was actually the Quaker version because there's spellings on the, like the Quaker homemade boards that transferred over to like the actual version of Monopoly. So they're like, oh, it's one of the Quaker versions. That's it. And that came across the radar of yeah. Charles Darrow. So Charles Darrow, yes, he does get the credit for it. And he gets his name put on the Monopoly box. But, but it was a lady. It was Maggie. Yeah. So he, he came across this game while playing with some of his Quaker friends and Dara was indeed an unemployed engineer during the Great Depression, playing the game with his friends. And he's like, well, this is a really cool game. Like, like what are the rules to it? And his friend was like, oh, well, it was invented by a lady. We don't have like written rules for it. This is just how people are playing it kind mm -hmm. of thing. And he was like, what? How about we write the rules down? Can we write the rules down? And he was like, okay. Because what he was trying to do was basically have copyrighted yeah right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so clever boy he then goes yeah so then he goes to parker brothers and has this written account of how he thought of the game it's <laughs> how monopoly the monopoly story gets on the, the board except that's not exactly true mm -hmm. now and because again remember she's had these patents for the the landlord game yeah like she has patents for it. she's got receipts as the kids say and in 1935 darrow and peter or Peter Brothers Parker. I, see where I got Peter Parker? Did you hear what was happening there with my, my brain? So the Parker Brothers, not the Peter Parker Brothers. 
Sorry. They get a patent for Monopoly and it sells like hotcakes. Everyone's like, this game is amazing. I love it. I love my soul being crushed from my body into oblivion. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. And, the, and the rules get changed, right? So yeah, mm -hmm. he, he takes it and makes it the Monopoly rules. Um, in November 1935, the Parker brothers get hit to the idea that maybe Monopoly isn't Darrow's original idea. Mm. And they see Maggie's 1924 patent for the game to the point where they're that worried about it, that George Parker himself goes to a now 70-year-old Lizzie Maggie and says, hey, we want to sell your, your game as well as buy two others that you've created. Here's $500. Oh, and she's on. like, Oh, wow. I'm so glad that my, my game is again, her, her purpose of the game is not only for the entertainment is to teach people. Really? Yeah. It's to teach people about like economics and mm -hmm. trying to really teach like the 99% about what's happening in the 1%. And Correct. Like, hey, this is like how these things are working. Yeah. Um, she's trying to make a social point with it too. And mm -hmm. so she's like, well, I'm, I'm really happy that this game is going to get out to the masses. Thank you so much. And Lizzie's thrilled. But royalties were not included. Mm, I knew in you were going to say that. Mm. And they were included in Charles Darrow's deal with Parker Brothers. And Parker Brothers did buy all the games. They bought the Landlord's game and then two other games that she had invented that she had put out as well, or you know, attempted to put out. They bought all three of those games for $500 and then quickly discontinued them. Those bastards. So that's when Lizzie goes from happy to pissed. And she's like, oh great. I didn't see a single extra cent beyond mm -hmm. that. I, she ends up passing away in 1948, not having made any more off the sales of her games. And she would have unfortunately been lost to history, except, except her economics professor, Ralph Anspach, who taught at San Francisco State University, who basically created the antithesis of Monopoly and named it, you guessed it, anti-Monopoly. <laughs> And it wasn't too long before he gets the cease and desist letters from Parker Brothers, right? Like you're making exactly Monopoly, but reversed, which mm -hmm. is one of the rules, sets of rules that was made from um, Ms. Maggie. And mm -hmm. instead of ceasing and desisting, though, Ansbach went to court for it for Hell over a decade. Yeah. And part of his defense, <laughs> and part of his defense is looking into the history of the game, and he could prove again. He's got the receipts of of Lizzie's patents. He could prove that the game existed for decades before Darrow then brought it to Parker Brothers, and that was when Lizzie's name was brought back. And like historians, like toy historians and like yeah. pop culture historians, have really jumped onto her story and put the spotlight on the figure that was written out. Yeah, Lizzie, Lizzie Maggie. So that's Monopoly. <laughs> Man, you had to know right? when you brought that one up, girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so next I have a few mid-century toys that were um, created out of World War II inventions that didn't quite go as planned. Okay. But then the people thought, hey, kids will like this. <laughs> Which that sounds scary. Hey, let me make up this thing for military and war use purposes. Oh, it didn't work out so well? That's okay. Give it to the children. That's good. So first up, we have the Slinky. The Slinky oh. was the most popular Christmas toy for 1945, and it was accidentally created in 1943 by engineer Richard James, who was attempting to design a device that the Navy could use to, to secure equipment on ships while there was rocking movement. And the story goes, there we go, some air quotes mm -hmm. there. The story goes, it is said that... He dropped the coiled wires that he was working with. He was using coiled wires to try and make some sort of 
little gate, you know, to keep everything held on to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he drops these coiled wires, which instead of just kind of falling to the ground, went did the, the slinky thing, yeah. went shitting, 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 shitting. Yeah. So he's actually like having to chase after it, which um, was like a funny visual to me. Extremely. <laughs> And as he's chasing it, he's like, well, this is kind of fun. It's, I can't use it for my purposes of what I'm trying to invent, but this is kind of interesting. And with a $500 loan, Richard and his wife, Betty, founded the James Industries in 1945, and they started making the Slinky. Yeah. Richard asked Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia to let them do a demonstration during Christmas shopping hours, and his 400 Slinkies that were in stock were completely sold out in less than two hours. Yeah. People were like, what is this? This is amazing. Shitink, 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 shitink. During the 60s, however, Richard left his family to join a religious cult because it's the 60s, but also we just took one hell of a left turn. Yeah, we did. That yeah. side quest came out of nowhere. <laughs> and sadly, he passed away in 1974. Betty really doesn't have her husband. Not only was he in a cult, but now he's passed away. She is a single mother of six. She goes all in financially on the slinky. Oh God. Remortgages the house. And she takes it to a toy show in New York in 1963, where it catches a second wind mercifully and sells out. And then thankfully from then on out, slinky just kind of became a life of its own. And mm-hmm. Betty and her family never had to worry about money again. Thankfully. Fantastic. Yeah. Which is great. And also a little interesting fun fact, during the Vietnam War, soldiers would sometimes take one of those metal slinkies and use it as an extendable antenna. So they would like move them and then throw it over a tree branch and they could get a better signal because of the metal. I don't know. I don't know how science works with that, but that's what they would do sometimes. And I was like, that's good. So you get a clearer, stronger signal. That's amazing. A second World War II whoopsie toy was Silly Putty. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, Silly Putty was also created in 1943, but was later the top president. Nope. Later the top Christmas present in 1955. So it had its popularity a little bit later. Okay. Historians are not quite sure who to credit with the invention of Silly Putty, um, but everyone does agree that it was a whoopsie daisy. <laughs> so you know how during World War II there were uh, material rations, cloth, yes. mm-hmm. Tin, metal, glass, fabric, yep. rubber. And the government subsidized people to grow hemp, remember? That was in and our hemp, episode right. on, um, oh, which episode was that? With half-baked history. Yes. History. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. history of cannabis. So the scientists were working on some sort of rubber alternative. Because they needed oh. rubber. And the story goes that some U.S. government-sanctioned chemists were working on said rubber issue. And they came up with this weird material that just couldn't really hold a rigid solid shape which kind of was it would stretch it kind of melted a little bit it yeah. like would bounce <laughs> so as a rubber substitute it totally sucked but as a toy they're like well this is kind of fun you imagine you'd be like well this is not at all useful or the gold but frank isn't this thing great <laughs> yeah and they they just packaged it and they're like silly buddy here you go and the weird thing is it it debuted about a dollar, like a little less than a dollar, which was kind of expensive for the fifties. You know, that's like an expensive item. The price hasn't really changed. Like if you go and you buy some silly putty, it's not like 50 cents or anything. It's still a dollar for the most part, you know? So yeah. And it's right next to that stuff where if you jam your hands into it, it farts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Flarp. Okay. I was going to say kids, kids my age would know it as GAC, which originally came out from Nickelodeon. GAC, flarp, silly putty. 
<laughs> now, the late 70s is where we get a pivot of toys becoming electronic. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is where it begins. So in 1977, the Atari 2600 game oh, system. Here it is. The biggest toy in 1977. Kicks off video games and just electronics as toys. Huge, right? Atari. Man. Yep. So for our next toy, we are going to meet inventor Ralph Baer, who had created a number of different electronic games and, and devices, such as a, a voice-activated intercom, an interactive video quiz game, a talking aircraft altimeter, Cool. A talking bicycle speedometer and odometer, a programmable remote record changer. Love Interesting. it. The first light gun video game, which made me think like duck hunt sort of thing, like a light gun. That's what I was thinking. Oh, like I thought Galaga. Should... Interesting. Okay. Well, light gun video game. Yeah. It makes me think that it's like a, a, another attachment and not so much like a, hmm. not that important. What is important is the talking doormat that he invented what? the chat mat. <laughs> right? Okay. Now, honestly, you wouldn't need to tell me any more about Ralph Bear after that. For, like, As far as I'm concerned, listening to his inventions makes me feel like I know everything I need to know about the man, right? And I adore him. I made the now, chat mat. sounds like great fun. Chat mat. But I am going to tell you about him because he's, he's cool outside of his inventions, right? So he was born in Germany and came to the United States at the tender age of 16 because of Nazis and anti-Semitism. That tends and to be a he, problem. Yeah. And he joins the U.S. Army. He fights and serves overseas in, in Europe. And he comes back mm-hmm. and he gets his engineering degree and works full-time as a defense contractor. And after all those interesting inventions that he has, yeah. Bear adds another ticked box to box to his illustrious list of achievements. And he invents the game Simon, a portable electronic version of the classic Simon says game. Oh no. So are you familiar with this? I don't know. I don't think anyone much younger than me is going to know. So I'm not sure if you actually would know what this is. Did we have one? We did not have one. Then probably not. Okay. So Atari had a game called touch me which didn't go over too well because it was obnoxious, mostly, you know. The sounds that accompanied the game were described by Bear as raucous. Oh. And so, like, a lot of people didn't really like it. So he and programmer Lenny Cope re-engineered the game to be portable, so it's, like, not on a gaming system, and have four tones that were musical and pleasing to the ears. Okay. And the final product was this round uh, sort of spaceship like flying saucer kind of shaped. And it had four colored buttons on top, red, green, yellow, blue. And you would press the corresponding buttons that would light up and you they play their little note in, in like a certain sequence. And the sequence would get longer and longer. So it was essentially a sequence in memory game. Ah. So we go, booby, boo, boo, booby, boo, boo, yeah. booby, boo, boo, boop. And you go, okay, I have to like get those in that order. And then you try and remember a next sequence on and on and on. Yeah. And it debuted in a place that makes so much sense if you've ever played Simon before. Okay. The midnight premiere was at Studio 54. And a four-foot model of it was like hung above the dance floor in 1978. Studio 54. That sounds familiar. Disco studio or the disco nightclub in New York City is very exclusive. Okay. The cool, cool place to go, right? The cool place. I would I would love to time machine back to Studio 54. But anyway, the game itself actually looks like one of those little light-up disco dance floors. And at that same sort of time, like it all comes together for Simon. It really does. That same sort of time, 
a year prior in 77, a little, uh, little movie by the name of Close Encounters of the Third Kind <laughs> by Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. comes out. And it had a similar thing going on with the way the spaceship looked and the way that it communicated and sounded when it's, when it's talking and communicating, like the whole mothership would light up like do, 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 like that whole thing. Yeah. And there's that whole scene where it's like an orchestra, like do, 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 do. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh my God, they're talking. This is great. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> and so that, so that, maybe Richard Dreyfus in it. Um, <laughs> is, and so that really helped the sales of the Simon toy. And it became yeah. the Christmas toy of 1979. And its sales, continued and like peaked in the in the 80s so now that we're in the 80s <laughs> i feel like a, a trip in, in with like nostalgia toys wouldn't be complete if i didn't include the cabbage patch kids oh yep and i wanted to mention them they don't really have like a, a, a insanely interesting history or anything necessarily in terms of how they came about but it was a, definitely a turning point and how like gross people got over toys like kids toys Gross behavior, I mean. Okay. So the story of the Cabbage Patch Kid doll was printed on the box, much like Monopoly, and it goes a little something like this. Okay. Xavier Roberts was a 10-year-old boy who discovered the Cabbage Patch Kids by following a bunny bee behind a waterfall into the magical Cabbage Patch, where he found the Cabbage Patch babies being born. To help them find good homes, he built Babyland General in Cleveland, Georgia, where the Cabbage Patch Kids could live and play until they were adopted. Huh. That's a cute story, innocence, right? Innocence, beautiful childhood innocence. I have a feeling mm-hmm. you're about to piss all over it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, just a little bit. I mentioned how like the late 70s saw the rise in electronic toy- yep. toys. And so mm-hmm. in the early 80s, well, I should say like late 70s into the 80s, having these expensive gadgets became a status symbol, both for the kids and the adults. Sure. You know, like it was mm-hmm. like, oh, I got little Timmy with the first, the, the first Walkman, like in the first shipment over from Japan. I got it. We already got have the Atari. Oh, you know. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was the Mercedes eighties, right? I mean, the consumerism, the materialism is oh, like God, yeah. very high. And it really hasn't period. stopped because I can't tell you how often they're like, you can't play the next Mortal Kombat. You have to have a PlayStation 5. I'm like, I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford a PlayStation 5. I'm unemployed, damn yeah. it. <laughs> so, yeah. So a lot of times, like, there's some historians that say, like, maybe the popularity of the Cabbage Patch doll part of it, you know, a small part of it, maybe for some was like, hey, we're getting back to a simple toy that doesn't have yeah. batteries and Adult. gadgets and stuff like that. Yeah. I never um, had one. Did you? I did. Okay. But I feel like I had mine later because I don't remember anything because this was like, Pre- no, I moral, never got the cabbage, the cabbage patch. patch kid, man. No, yeah. I got stuck with a Furby. Lucky you. I wanted one of those so bad. Oh, God. Lord, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Do you know how often, like, because it sat, remember how I had like a bin of stuffed animals? Mm-hmm. It sat in there and would awaken in the middle of the night, <laughs> which is nightmare fuel. Those five nights at Freddy's? No, that was my bedroom at night when the Furby would be like, feed me. And I was like, <gasps> souls. <laughs> <laughs> terrible they were kind of creepy and weird they, furby so scared bad, me i did not like furby i expected it to like turn into a gremlin like after you showed me gremlins and i just thought mm-hmm. it was coming for me i thought it was getting the steak knives and yeah i had a lot of weird like childhood trauma that we're unpacking today <laughs> yeah i'll have to unpack sometime <sighs> well 2024 is gonna be a new year sure so. is <laughs> <laughs> healing 
the motto. Um, so as I mentioned that the origin story, the origin story says that they're magical little babies and you could adopt them. Correct. Right? So that Babyland general that I mentioned in the story, yeah, it was a real place. That was his store. It was He called it Babyland oh. general and he had converted this old uh, medical clinic into a store where he'd have the employees dress up as nurses and have them like walk around and interact with the little baby dolls yeah. at, in their incubators and their it's kind of magical actually. It's a really cute idea. And I, yeah. I like as somebody who loves a gimmick, I, you know what I yeah. mean? Like I, I find the creativity and like the gimmicks for the marketing and stuff. I think that's really interesting. So it makes it magic for kids. That's yes. It, it is a part of the magic because it's an experience, not just an item. Right. And the kids were really excited about this. This is like yeah. a, such a really cool thing. It was, um, each of the dolls came with adoption papers that would be signed, Aww. birth certificate. They got their own individual name. Like my Build-A-Bear. Yes, <laughs> that's what it was. And it was unique. It was special. And the timing of this is perfect because it was manu- because manufacturing had recently become computerized, which Aww. means that Xavier and his company, they could have Hump it an out. astonishing amount of randomized computer, <laughs> you know, generated outcomes, you know, as yep. what these dolls would look like. The hair, the eye color, the skin color, the hairstyle, where the dimples went, if they had freckles, if they didn't have freckles, it was a yep. whole unique thing. Yeah. And Xavier takes these dolls, which he called little people, cool. um, which was like also at the time that Fisher Price had little people you know so there was like a little bit of like so i think he called them the little people or something like that okay but there was a a name similarity there which they later became cabbage patch kids yeah um to kind of unique eyes Mm -hmm. (laughs) that a little bit more but uh he takes these dolls in this massive campaign uh this publicity marketing tour and people ate it up and the demand Mm -hmm. for these dolls even as they were released was unheard of right now, I mentioned with some of these other stories, some of the toys that I mentioned earlier, they sold out and people would be like, okay, they sold out and you know that happens and the manufacturer would just have to make more and people would patiently wait until they came back out again and hit the stores. But the supply doesn't meet the demand oh. and the manufacturers are just like trying to keep up with this. Now, I'm no economist, yeah. but I understand the basics of supply and demand. Yep. And this time around, the sellouts, you know, instead of just selling out, people being like, oh, we'll just wait till more come. It turns into this unadulterated chaos. Oh, God. Stores that receive shipments would face crowds of people queuing up for hours. <laughs> They'd put the toys out and there would be fist fights over them. It like sounds like any a Black Friday island. thing. It was like that. Yeah. Yep, it was like that. But yeah. just every time these, these shipments of these dolls would come around. Anyone who did manage to get their hands on it had to make sure that they could get it up to the the checkout, you know, like try to get it to the checkout without it being stolen from you and pay for it. And then once you pay for it, hide that box because as you're walking out of the store, people are coming in and trying to grab the box out of your hands. Damn. It was absolute chaos. And people are stealing them from kids. Like kids are like, oh, I'm going to get my Cabbage Patch doll. Oh, my you know? God. And like, it's, Come on. kids are excited about the doll. They're not, they're not looking at this. Like, this is like a scarce thing. No, this is just a toy that they've been really excited about. People are like taking it from people. There's a picture of a woman in Texas and like a pile of people, like with her hands around a box. And another woman has her purse strap, like wrapped around her neck, like a girl. Oh my God. (laughs) Fucked up. And 
on top of that, it was uh, the inspiration for the 1996 Christmas classic uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad, Jingle oh, All the Way. Jingle All the Way. Man. I can't watch that movie. It stresses me out so much. It stresses I was me like, out. I can't. So I've re- realized that I'm not a big one on consumerism. <laughs> but yeah, dude, if you stole a toy out of my kids' hands, not that I have children, but if I did, I would definitely easily either punch your teeth in or break your nose you're not getting out of that like <laughs> well right and it's if just it was such rightfully weird... mine is what i'm saying i would not go and do that to someone to steal it but i'd be like sure. bro i i will defend my kith and kin we will we will do this now <laughs> and it was such a weird thing because people weren't doing that for kids toys of all things you know so to have that happen was like super strange and scary and like are you okay like yeah is everybody okay here so, Cabbage Patch Kids. So it started there. And, mm-hmm. and there are also like a few threads that you'll find that you can kind of pick through with this story where it has some similar origins to like Monopoly in terms of like how that came about. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in a few articles as well as um, one article about a resulting lawsuit in a long legal battle with the woman who claims to have invented the dolls first. Okay. So these pop up on sources like Vice and Medium, okay. which are not reliable. I, I think the most reliable sort of news sources, they have a very specific lens in which they're telling their news stories. Yeah. But to try and follow it out from there, you can get a couple more concrete or more yeah, sound like what's sources. Your, yeah, like where are you getting yeah. that material from? Right. Yeah. Um, so according to Vice, and it's short documentary that they did on the topic, and you know, so take this as you will, is, is all mm-hmm. I'm trying to say. The dolls were originally invented by a Kentucky artist named Martha Nelson Thomas, who made the soft body dolls with very similar faces in the early 70s. And she called them doll babies. And she handmade each one. They were all unique and different. And they would be adopted by friends and family and the people that she sold them to at craft fairs. They were Mm -hmm. a little bit larger, but that was her whole thing was like, oh, you adopt the doll baby. And yeah, it's a whole thing. Uh, Vice says that young Xavier Roberts, who owned a gift shop at the time, was 21, saw a doll baby at one of these craft fairs and wanted to sell them in his shop, which Martha declined. So with them not being copywritten, Xavier thought, well, fine, I'll just make them myself and sell them in my store. Yeah. Uh, Martha later sued Roberts and then they settled out of the court for an undisclosed sum. But that's be- where I leave the Cabbage Patch Kids. Yeah. I'd be interested to know. Uh, I would just be interested to see how that like turned out. Like if she, did she have a bunch of witnesses on, that would be the only way to know. Like if Mm. a bunch of people came forward, like, yeah, I bought this from her at this date. Like, obviously it's hers. I'd be so curious. I'm thinking she she had to have enough. Um, In the documentary, there's, it's like a short video, which if you follow my vice thing, the video, yeah, the article, Mm -hmm. the videos embedded in it, her son uh, has one of the dolls and is talking about it. And like, this is one of the dolls that was made. And mm-hmm. th- I think she probably had like enough friends and family that bought them or people at craft fairs that bought them that she mm-hmm. had a leg to stand on with that. But um, yeah, so that's, interesting. that's an interesting story that, and her son's like, it was never about the money. It was more, that's why she didn't file a lawsuit for a little while, but it was just one of those things where the principle of the matter. And yeah. I think like, it's her idea. Made- two billion dollars or something like that off of it so Jeez. yeah so i think she's like um excuse me you stole my idea like i sound just like that. a little bit of credit here so there's the cabbage patch kids 
Now, staying in the 80s, Katie, what do you think happens when you take the beloved teddy bear from early 20th century okay. and you throw in some inspiration from Lord of the Rings and Disney? Oh, my God. Only good things, probably. Mm-hmm. Something very... I don't know if I know where this is going, but it sounds extremely exciting and possibly something that I would be a consumer of. Right. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? It's the world's first animatronic toy. Oh. No. So this is my big moment, everybody. (laughs) It's my big moment. Now, I could have gone without telling you the history of this particular toy that I'm about to to tell you about. Um, Even though it's got a really cute history, like I could have, I could have skipped over it, but uh, it debuted to the world when I did (laughs) and was the number one toy for 1985 and 86. Had a cartoon TV series and very nearly a live action movie. And then just immediately fizzled out two years later. Oh man, that's kind of sad. So it's created by Ken Forsey, who was originally an engineer, although like we'd say Imagineer before they were called that, I think, who worked on the creative team for designing uh, attractions at Disneyland. He worked on sculpting the heads for the Country Berry Jamboree and painting the eyes and features on the dolls of Katie's favorite ride. Good God. It's a small world. He was so inspired by the animatronics that he was that he was working on. He decided that he was going to start tinkering with them at home. Oh, inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he left Disney and started his own company called Alchemy, which I just love that name. So yes. Much. I just uh, have to tell you all, Alchemy. What a cool name for a company. Uh-huh. And he was working alongside puppeteers of popular children's show HR Puff and Stuff, which <laughs> hey oh, I love that. <laughs> And then consulting for this little startup by the name of Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater. Oh, no. <laughs> Good God. Makes sense, right? Like, it, it it checks out. But at home, he continues to tinker with animatronics. And he even went so far as to create a script for a little little teddy bear, his little adventures, in the fantasy world in which he lived. And Teddy Ruxpin was born. I don't know this one. You do. Oh, heart. This is, yeah, mm. this is a you thing. No, because didn't I? No, I remember this. I remember people were talking and they were like, do you remember Teddy Ruxpin? I was like, nope, not at all. And I immediately, I'm like, but hold on. Here's me on my phone. Hey, Laurel, do you remember <laughs> one of those random middle of the day texts you get from me? And you're mm-hmm. like, do I? And I was like, oh, yeah. sounds like Laurel knows it. They're like, you're too young. I'm like, oh buzz off i remember plenty of things prior to my <laughs> conception and yeah birth <laughs> uh so yes yeah, i remember so talking about it with you okay so for all of you here is little little baby laurel i <laughs> think i'm i don't know maybe six in this yeah i'd say maybe five or six in this picture that's up right now with my teddy ruxpin and my my nude barbie dolls uh teddy <laughs> ruxpin always just hung out with barbie dolls that was that was what teddy did we read stories together but then he hung out with the Barbie dolls. Why not? That's who I'd want to hang out with too, to be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's how I just loved my little Teddy Ruxpin so much. Uh, and Teddy Ruxpin was actually a 16-year-old bear. What? I didn't know that. Until really? Like, He's 16, 16 years old. And he came from the magical world of Grundo, specifically born in the southern island called Rilonia. Rilonia. Oh. I would remember that better. His best buddy uh, was named Grubby, and it was like this eight-legged orange bug creature. Sometimes people were like, 
it's a mammal. I'm like, are we sure about that? I don't know. It was a little, it was interesting. You were afraid it was an interesting little guy. Come on now. Yeah. And they (laughs) were both friends with Grundo's version of Doc Brown, basically, from Back to the Future, who also looked like a whole lot like Maurice from Beauty and the Beast. So here he is. I should probably put a picture of him Crazy old Maurice. (laughs) (laughs) And then together, the three of them, they thwarted the evil schemes of this crappy wizard named Tweeg, and there were magical crystals, and it was a whole whole thing. Damn it, Tweeg. (laughs) (laughs) And Forcey had this really interesting idea of this animatronic teddy bear that kids could read the book and he would like read it along with you would blink oh, and talk actually and really cool it was really cool very very cool and you hear all about his adventures and his world and their little stories and it was really i loved reading so much when i was a kid i really feel like it helped me learn reading these bigger stories mm-hmm. too because he would be saying them and i would be reading them with my mm-hmm. eyes and following along and um it was yeah it was just the, the magic of storytelling and yeah. big names like Hasbro and Jim Henson, yeah. they were like, this is really impressive. This is cool stuff, but we either don't have a need for it right now. Like we don't have any projects we're working on where this makes mm-hmm. sense, or we don't want to fund it depending on, you know, who it is. Yeah. But um, he finally finds his break in former president of Atari, Don Kingsborough. Oh. And Don was into it. He was it's like, cool. Yeah, I, I didn't know he idea. ran along with you. That's actually really cool. So here we go. I'll put a picture up of him here. But he had this like beige vest that went over like a red t-shirt and his little shorts. Mm-hmm. And the vest would, was Velcroed. You lift it up. There was a tape deck in the back and you put the cassette tape in there for, and it would go along to the story. So there were like 60, I think there were 60 books that were written. Holy 150 cow. songs. They had to make sure it was programmed to go along with the words and yeah. with the songs and everything. So there was a lot of programming that went into this, depending on which tape that you put into the tape deck is amazing. And There's a lot of work and effort into it too. Yeah. Beginning in the, which really says something because the, this is at the beginning of January when he meets Don Kingsborough, who's like, yes, I'm into it. I'm going to fund this idea. We're going to get this on shelves within a, ter- well, Sorry, early 1985. It wasn't quite January, but early 1985. Six months later, it's September 1985. Yeah. And they turned it into an idea on paper with a little head on a stick. And it hit shelves September wow. 1985. So in six months, just a little uh, nerdo fact for you guys. Atari also had a really quick turnaround time for what ended up becoming their probably their worst product, their worst video game. Okay. So five month turnaround for ET. So oh. if anyone knows about what happened with ET is they ended up in a bunch of landfills and <laughs> were thrown out and were horribly unsold um, and oh. were a big bust. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> so thankfully Teddy Ruxpin did a little bit better. But it was it was huge. There were, like I said, there were over 150 songs written to go along with these various cassettes tapes. The toy is a massive wow. hit, spins off into a cartoon TV series. Sure. And almost a live action movie, but the movie fell through when the Toys Parrot Company, World of Wonder, hit financial troubles with oh. one of their other toys that they made. They made um, laser tag, yeah. laser tag guns, and a nineteen-year-old um, Leonard Falcon was killed by LAPD who mistook a laser oh. gun that he had on him for a real gun. Damn! And the company went under. 
It went under in 1987, but a lot of the voice talent went on to do amazing things. So mm-hmm. uh, one of them went on to be the voice for Minnie for a long time <laughs> in cartoons and movies. Yeah. Another one for Goofy. Uh, another one <laughs> went on to become the voice for the Furby. Oh, God. Uh, feed me. One of, <laughs> feed me. One of them uh, it's like a puppeteer for Chucky and like the Child's Play movies oh and God. also like Salem and the Sabrina the Why Teenage Witch series. Why are animatronics like always that. like on that borderline of horror and wonder? <laughs> it's a thin line. Thin line. Yeah. But they went on to be voice talent and puppeteers for other things. But uh, yeah. So that's Teddy Ruxpin. Cool. I'm going to leave us in the 80s there. Uh, I'm going to conclude my half of the episode. It's been a long one. I'm going to conclude my half of the episode in the 90s, which had a lot of interesting little toys and gadgets. And they all have, a lot of them have like fun little backstories, like how the Super Soaker Squirt Gun was another whoopsie creation by military scientists and engineers where they're like, we want to have something that compresses water and shoots really far. Hey, let's make the Super Soaker. Hey, this won't work for us quite so well, but we can turn this into a really great squirt gun. Yeah. Oh man, the '90s. What an era! The craze of Pokemon. You know, oh girl, thing, the Pokemon don't even get cards. me started. And also, I just wrote in. Also, like, how fucking weird were Pogs? <laughs> What's a Pog? You have exactly. I was gonna say you would know what they are, but some of you out there are like, oh my god, Pogs. Yeah, listener, did you forget about Pogs? I didn't. I loved them. I had so many Pogs and so many Slammers. But what I want to end it on for all of us today is one of the weirdest wildest toy crazes in toy history the beanie baby <laughs> uh, i feel like when thai company thai inc mm-hmm. dropped the, ba- the beanie baby on the scene i feel like i was pretty good in that perfect target age range mm-hmm. right there as a, as a kid i was in elementary school um about fourth grade and I remember like ha- having them up through middle school sort of time. Like when I got to older middle school, right as, as the time that they were starting to become less popular. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I was right in that target age range. Yeah, I was like right in it. Now, Katie, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the time that they came out, because I don't want to like, you know, trample over your memory and your experience of them. Yeah. If, I feel like you grew up in Dibini Babies. Like you had them and I know you loved them so much, but you were kind of young to remember like all the facets of it, right? So to be completely honest with you, my memory of Beanie Babies is that they were always there. And then because I was an Animal Planet kid, I just remember every time they released a new animal, I was excited about that. But I think that Mm -hmm. had a lot more to do with the attention to detail of the animal and the fact that I was so obsessed with animals is Mm -hmm. really more where the Beanie Baby craze hit me. So, but as far as like a stuffed animal, I was like, yeah, they're cool. But I was just more excited about like, like the Arctic fox, the (laughs) Siberian lynx, uh, the manatee, like weird stuff like that, where I was like, oh, this is so cool. (laughs) Yeah, I was a nerdy kid. But I I just remember, yeah, I remember us both really liking them a whole lot, Mm -hmm. you know, for our different reasons, but we both had them, Mm -hmm. loved them. I remember getting like mad as hell at you if you were playing with any of mine um heaven forbid there it happened a couple times where you messed up the tag Uh and a couple times you ripped it off and i lost my mind i Um, don't remember that so you're good yeah well that's good that's good that you didn't and now like if anyone's listening they're like 
that sounds like an extreme reaction. Like, well, no, you, because they were supposed to be extremely collectible. But that was actually exactly what I want to talk about, though, because yes, if you if you had a pristine <laughs> hanging tag on it, along with a pristine mm-hmm. beanie baby, it therefore made it worth a ridiculously large amount of money, disproportionate to yeah. what they cost, like the value, you know. Yeah. And that's the weird history I want to uh, talk about. So. In case you're younger than than Katie and I, or if, or maybe much older, I don't know. Like, I think maybe there's like a window on either side of our age. I think people know like, what, what beanie babies are most of the time. Think so? Okay. Like, in case you don't know what a beanie baby is, just in case, like, it was a small stuffed animal. It was filled with little bean bag pellets, you know, little beans. Um, it's about, I don't know, what did you say, like seven, six to eight inches long. You know, that you're usually laying down or they would be sitting up, yeah, depending they're on about what six kind of inches thing you long. Are. That's and fair. They cost uh, $5 each, pretty much across the board, $5. Okay. They were created and sold by Chicago area company, Ty Inc., named after its CEO, H. Ty Warner. Oh. And originally in the, the early 90s, Ty, um, Ty Inc. made stuffed cats, like much bigger stuffed animals than they were cats. And <laughs> like he, yeah, there were different colors do. and yeah, he loved it. Uh, but their inventory changed in 1993 when they be- debuted the Beanie Baby at a toy fair in New York in 1993. And they're really cute and simple. It's like a little yep. stuffed animal. You know, they're not, there's a variety they're not fancy. of them. Yeah. There's nothing fancy about them. From an elephant to a frog to a lobster the cat. to a dog. Don't forget the cats. You know, I had all these different kinds. And they all came with a little tag that had their name on them. Mm-hmm. Like Legs the Frog. Seaweed the otter spots the dog, Flash the dog. Like they all had like cute little names There's that went with them. There's a polar bear, a Clydesdale. There's the Chicago Bulls one. <laughs> Those right, are the ones yep. that I can see right now. And then later the tag included the date of birth and yeah. like a little ditty, a little poem about the animal. Mm-hmm. So for example, seaweeds, I looked this one up because seaweed was one of my favorites. She was so cute. Seaweed is what she likes to eat. It's supposed to be a delicious treat. Have you tried a treat from the water? If you haven't, maybe you, Otter. They were so great. They're cute. Kids love them. They're really popular. The sales are skyrocketing. But here's where things get a little nutty. Mr. Warner and his company introduced some marketing tactics that turn a very popular product into a full-blown craze Mm. driven by adults of all people. Of course. (laughs) Now, to start, and this is and this is like innocent, like this is innocuous enough, you know, in the Chicago area where the company originates, but in the Chicago area, there's a handful of like smart upper middle class women, you yep. know, like soccer moms or whatever, or uh, there's a, a doctor, a commodities trader, a teacher, like these are smart ladies, you know, I'm picturing, I'm picturing that they're from like Glencoe, Northbrook, Lake <laughs> right. Forest sort of area. North like Shore. Thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And they're just trying to collect the beanbags. They, for whatever reason, are they just really love these beanie babies. And they're mm-hmm. like, wow, there's so many different kinds. They're I want to collect cute. all of them. Yeah. I collect them. And it'd be the point where, as they're trying to complete their collections, that they'd be racking up these huge phone bills to out-of-state gift shops to ask them about their inventory. Yep. yep. And this hype started to build in this little pocket. I had to travel far and wide to find my links, man. Uh-huh. I found it eventually in Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My dad drove so this... me all the way up there to get it. <laughs> and I remember it was at an ice cream shop. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, I was so happy when we found that. Yes, the, the days of the, the journeying to find the, the <laughs> Beanie Babies. And this little pocket of hype 
and buzz around these these beanie babies with these women that picks up and the world word of these small groups of collectors really gets fanned by the flames of early internet mm-hmm. you know the, the internet's such an early concept at this point but there's like discussion boards and these things start trickling around faster you know than the word of mouth through means of you know electronic means and the internet and now we're going to add to the mix in 1995 ty announces that some beanie babies are going to begin getting retired by the end of the year mm-hmm. which then creates this artificial scarcity and turns up the heat on collectors trying to make sure that they get certain ones before the end of the year Yep. Before they're gone forever, right? They're in the vaults. You will never see them again. And along with this, Ty had a very specific distribution strategy in which an independent dealer would only receive, in one go, 36 units of each kind of beanie, Mm -hmm. which created a scarcity too. Like you're only going to get 36 Garcia the Bears, that kind of thing. They were smart how they did this. Now we're going to add to this cauldron of chaos. Also in 95, a little startup website by the name of eBay yep. was launched. There it is. <laughs> and there the collectors then began buying and selling beanies on the internet. Some of them for some serious cash. Like so if any of our fellow beanie baby kids out there listening, do you remember Peanut the Elephant? Yes. The Roy the Royal Blue color elephant. Mm-hmm. It had to be a certain color. It was yeah. it the like baby blue one or no? Well, the baby blue one was what came out. Now I think that still has a certain amount of rarity, but it was the Royal blue one, which was one of the first ones that came out. And that would go for like $4,000. People would pay that kind oh of my money. Oh God, to really? Get it. Yes. Consistently too. Like it would. I had the baby go. blue one, not the Royal yeah. one. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it right now. Sorry. Carry on. Yes. Yeah. No, you're good. In fact, for the first two years of eBay, Beanie Babies made up between six and 10% of its total sales. <laughs> I saw both numbers. So I'm just like, eh. And that's what helped get eBay off the ground was just how popular the Beanie Beanie Babies Babies were on it. Uh Got them going. (laughs) Collectors created and sold a pricing guide that speculated at the worth of all these Beanie Babies, all the different Beanie Babies that were made, speculated at their worth in 2008. Yep. I wonder if anybody else said the year because that was what it was. It was always like 10 years out. It was like, this is when mm -hmm, 2008, when they were going to be sold for thousands and thousands of dollars boy they're gonna be so expensive and that boy were they wrong three million copies <laughs> yeah now people now people now outside this collecting world are going oh these like beanie baby things they must be a good investment if they're going to be going for thousands of dollars on the internet so now let's talk about the crime and all the weird stories to hit the news headlines oh god but the basic level, there's petty crime, right? There's like the small scale thefts, taking them from homes, backpacks, strollers, cars, things like that. Like Man. where the people see them, they're picking up and taking them. It's no idea but that then beanie are, babies are like, it's good thing yeah. I hold tight to that, man. Yeah, that's the thing. We as kids, we just loved them. We just loved to have them and carry them around with us. Mm-hmm. But there's something like in the adult level, there's something so much more like insidious going on mm-hmm. and like weird, you know, insidious. But, you know, it's just like. You know, taking toys from kids is insidious. You You can definitely label it as such. And some people have more complex scams. Like there's a a New Hampshire couple who would buy beanies, beanie babies off of eBay with forged checks, and they would resell them for a lot more money to buy drugs. Some scam artists were the seller themselves who would either never send out the product, would have like these pictures of these beautiful, hard to find beanie babies, and then like, 
sell, like actually send them out, never deliver them That's or sold knockoffs, which were coming out overseas. And they, they would just like post them up with like these grainy early internet photos. <laughs> and then, you know, oh. they would look, look the same online. Right. But even more uh, organized and ambitious crime rings got involved. In 1999, a burglar dubbed the Beanie Baby Bandit stole, which makes me think of Home Alone, where the right? white bandits, Kinda, the, yeah. bandits <laughs> the Beanie Baby Bandits, oh. uh, they stole 200 Beanie Babies from a stationery shop in New York, which was at value is $1,000. Okay. Right. I mean, like 200 things, $5 each, you know, a thousand bucks, but you could sell them online for thousands and so, you know, the actual worth that this person could sell was a lot more than what they were actually having to steal them for in the store. So that made it like a really high theft object, you know, because yeah. like, it's not like stealing diamonds, you know, it was like this thing that they could resell for so much more online. And um, so there's that. And then in Ohio, there was a, a toy, a van that had like $20,000 worth of inventory in it that was stolen from a toy convention. Outside oh, no. Of toy convention. There was a story even that was saying like um, cops were recognizing the value like that bear is a $400 bear when they see it, you know, like because they're so used to like seeing what these. Well, especially because when they make reports, they have to document that down with their value Mm -hmm. so that when the insurance claims come through later, I don't know if this happened at this point in time, but now you would insurance claim a valuable item uh, Mm -hmm. that would be documented in the police report. So sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get it. But something to keep in mind is this is all speculative. Sure, it's worth it's worth three thousand oh, yeah. dollars if you can get someone to pay for right, it, right? That's but exactly this is right. all like a speculative bubble, uh-huh. right? And so there's oh, and, and God, there's even like the picture of it's really famous now. It's the picture of the divorced couple with their giant stack of beanie babies, and they're like picking through them. Like, these are my beanie babies. These are his beanie babies because they had uh well an estimated worth between two and a half thousand dollars and $5,000. I guess their whole collection oh was God, estimated to be that much. So, and they weren't dividing up. Yeah. The story. So like the story goes like they weren't dividing up their, that was the whole point. Like was with the divorce is like, I think I'm looking at it. In yeah, 1999. They're, on the floor. they're crouched on the floor. You'll see them like picking them up and yeah, there they are. And it was really embarrassing for everyone involved because the couple weren't dividing up their, Beanie Babies, like they're supposed to. He was supposed to, like, what his what his were was his, hers were hers. The like, lawyer just, has his yeah. hand, like. <laughs> and, well, yeah, because the judge basically was like, right, since you guys can't do this yourselves, I have to sit here, a bailiff has to sit here, your lawyers have to stand here, and now we have to watch you go through this. Wow. And then the, the, the couple were like, oh, God, this is so embarrassing. Like, And they're like, well, you should have done it. And so they're like, all right, fine. You know, like, it was just a really... Oh like really cringe thing for everyone involved well, but anyway you should have acted like an adult so there you go so you're gonna act like a kid you're gonna get treated like a kid yeah you will now do it with supervision yeah anyway they hit their their peak beanie babies hit their peak at the towards the end of the 80s it's like or sorry end of the 90s it was like 98 99 sort of time yeah and ty announces their 1998 retirements and they're like, okay, which is what they did every year. At the end of 1998, these are the ones that are going to be retired. Mm-hmm. And then people, you know, were trying to snatch them up. But a weird thing was that year, they didn't retire them. 
Hmm. And so they stayed on the shelves and it created this moment of like doubt of people being like, oh, well, is, is this actually a good investment? Are they actually retiring these things? Are they going to, are they going to like flood the market again with like the old ones and like try and just create a hype, you know? So there's now a question mark above it. Following year, September, 1999, Ty Inc. sends out this, um, this press release and says, very important notice on December 31st, 1999, at 11.59 p.m. Central Time. All beanies, all beanies will be retired, including the above. And everyone was like, wait a second, no more beanie babies? Like, oh my gosh. So if the fans were like, no, please don't discontinue them. We love them. And so a few months later, so around the time that they're, you know, quote unquote, retiring all of them. Yeah. Ty Inc. then's like, oh, no, just kidding. We're going to make a new Beanie Baby line altogether and we're going to start it off in the new millennium. We'll have a Star Spangled Band. We're going to call it the the beginning. It's going to be its new name. Okay. And so then people were like, again, that question mark gets bigger. We're like, oh, we'll, you know, try to fabricate like a sense of scarcity with, with these or are you trying to rekindle hype around Beanie Babies? Because at this point, the sales weren't yeah, starting to win dying. a little bit. Yeah. With that, it really, it, the the bubble just as quickly as it became exciting and in everything for collectors, it burst and yeah. people were left with all this inventory and all these beanie babies that they can't sell <laughs> for anything now. Right. And that's the thing for those of us who like had them and loved them as a toy, we, we still have them. But I remember like as a kid, because I was towards the older end, the age, I think that they were appropriate for. Yeah. Um, I remember thinking I had one of those high like, school pricing. by that point. Yeah. Well, just about, yeah. 2000 was when I was going into high school. Yeah. So like I was older middle school, like, you know, seventh, eighth grade. That's yeah. Like not you don't cool. really play with stuff. I still animals. had them. I was yeah. like, playing with them. Right. But uh, I remember then thinking about them that with my little pricing book, like, oh, in 2008, like I could resell these and mm-hmm. like have money for them. So like, that's why you got I mad was, at me. <laughs> Oh yeah, like if you ripped the tag off, I was pissed because I was like, "Oh, well, I ripped they the were... tag off." I I remember being very young, playing with them, and always being like, "Okay, be careful with the tag," because I would like get mad at you about oh, it. Maybe yeah, that's where that came from. I think it was the Siamese cat that you ripped the tag off of. Oh damn! I think I think I remember it being one of my my cats or the bear. I'm not sure. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But I remember at the time, like as a kid, I'd be it's like, probably- over here in this bag because you probably gave them all to me it's probably sitting over there right now yeah i think i probably just gave you my beanie babies i would think you i, mean, I don't polar have polar bear i can see it and i know that one was yours because polar I bears had the are... diana one in my basement oh do I you think it got it got in barbie collection oh nice so i had the diana one like in a box yeah you I had a lot of barbies like, oh, you had here. cool barbies i like my barbies too but uh yeah so so there's the like some weird history behind all these different toys that we know and love from the 20th century. So some of them, you know, you probably remember playing with yourself and hope it has good memories for you. But yeah, I thought when it, the end, end of the year, end 2023, with something a little light and nostalgic and chill. There we are. <laughs> Incidentally, if anyone wants to buy Beanie Babies, feel free. <laughs> We have so many baby babies to to go through now. Yeah, I have to figure but. out what to do with those. <laughs> You'll figure it out. Hmm. It's all good. You can always donate them. You know, go give a child joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, well, thanks for hanging out with us for that long. This was uh, about three hours of content that I'm going to be working through. Oh, it's, a, it's a long end. Hopefully, hopefully it keeps you company while you're uh, in, in your holiday spirit still. But uh, but thanks for joining us for it. We're going to do this all again in, the, in a couple of weeks. But in that point, it's going to be 2024. So we'll be joining you for a new year. We'll be joining us for a new year. New year in the smoke circle, doing what we love, talking history. <laughs> a little bit buzzed while we do it. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. We've got some really fun, fun episodes coming up that we, we've got planned. So it's going to be really great. <laughs> Try to get a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, folks, get money, get high, give love, and enjoy the holidays. Take the time to see people you don't always get to see. Appreciate them. Let them know you appreciate them. And uh, set your intentions for the new year. Right on. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye. See you in 2024. Bye-bye.